Hi everyone, and welcome to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir, the only pod that takes you behind the scenes and gives you the inside word on the world of tech and growth from the insiders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of Luxury Escapes, journalist and angel investor. And I'm joined by my great mate, Adir Schiffman, executive chairman of Catapult Sports and serial investor. In today's episode, we talk about the struggles at Tesla, new fashion models going bad, tough times for sophisticated investors, and venture capital woes. Welcome, dear episode 24. Who would have thought back in back in person? Oh, Good to see you person. again. I much, so much prefer this. Sight for sore eyes. So, <laughs> so much prefer in person. And I think since we last saw each other in person, our, our listenership's up about 25%, so it's been a nice six weeks for the contrarians. Yeah, what I noticed is that everything keeps rising thirty or thirty-five percent a month. Like that is that is the growth rate. It's yeah, it's been very consistent. It's been great. How was your week? You had a busy. I had a great few week. Days. I mean, it was the Australia Day week. Yeah, we're allowed to say that. I'm not going to get the show cancelled if I. Throw <laughs> you might actually. I dropped thirty-five percent. I was just very disappointed to see there were almost no Australia Day flags that I saw flying, and I was wondering if that was because people had been intimidated not to fly them. By the way, I just want to say, I do think it's a complicated issue, yep. but I still think we've got to celebrate Australia on some date, and at the moment it's this date, so move actually, it give me a date to celebrate it. I'm, I'm sympathetic to the people who, who want to move the date, so I'm not, I don't yep. have a great view either way, but I'm certainly sympathetic to that. But I always hated Australia Day. You've got this six-week holiday, you've got a holiday at the end of a holiday, it would always interrupt the tennis with the stupid fireworks. Like, there was nothing I liked about Australia Day how about before the, this whole brouhaha. But how about the Australia part of Australia Day? Do you like what that you part of it? Day for no, it. I like, think it's good. I think it's good. Like, no, there's there's such a good country, and like most countries are good. Like there aren't many people. Most countries are good. Well, most Western democracies, like they're well, fine. I agree with that. Most yeah. Western democracies are good. They should all have celebratory days. I don't for think you need how a day. great society. I, as is. you know, my feeling on on birthdays. I don't like to celebrate birthdays. All you've done is not die for for a year. Same as I don't like to celebrate Australia. All the country done is not die for a year. I, I just don't see any need to celebrate this meaningless day. That who cares? I like it, but I noticed there were no flags, and I was trying to figure out whether people were just intimidated into no flags or whether the Woolworths ban on selling Australia Day merchandise was – that was what was causing no flags. Well, it's flags. not just Woolworths. The Woolworths copped the heat because I think they just botched the PR of it so badly. I wasn't a fan of the boycott call, by the way. I thought that yeah, was pretty, no, pretty, pretty, pretty dumb, ridiculous. Right? I don't like boycotts. But Aldi cancelled it. Kmart cancelled it last yeah. year. Like if, if they're not commercially making money from something, they should delete it. So like I think just – Woolworths seemed to virtue signal with it, and that was the problem. I think business should have learned from the whole Bud Light disaster with Dylan Mulvaney, and, yeah. and there's much more downside than upside in trying to make it. Like, if you think something is wrong, go execute that, and if you yeah. want to delete Australian, Australian Day stuff, for whatever reason, delete it. I think trying to s- score points, and I think most companies have done it. I think the, possibly the exception was Qantas during the uh, referendum mm. to, for, for, for gay marriage. And clearly, Alan, this is it before Alan Joyce's star completely diminished. But there was genuine – most of the country was on side with that. So I think it was a, a, a low-risk strategy to take to support – we had 80% plus of people, probably 95% of Qantas customers were supporting that. It was a low risk. But I think people saw that, other businesses saw that, and now take it, go to town, and every single, every issue they can virtue signal on, they kind of do, and it, it sort of feels like it's gone way too far. I don't like companies taking any political positions. That's my personal view. Like, you say 95% of Qantas customers were in favour of gay marriage. Like, I was in favour of it, but 95% of customers weren't. The number, the percentage of customers was the same as the percentage of the country that was in favour of it. It wasn't 95%. I think companies should focus on stakeholders and making money and doing it in ethical ways and leave the politics to 
politicians and citizens. I don't, I don't like them taking positions. I think the gay marriage one, I, I generally agree. So I agree with most of, almost all of what you said. I think there were some, there were some positions where I think if you said, could you take a position on, on the Hamas war or the Hamas-Israel war, would you, would you oppose if, a, if, a, I if, don't a, think if someone should take positions? Like, so, so I think like racism, anti-Semitism, that's different. That's not a political that's a position. Issue. Well, if your political position is that you're in favour of anti-Semitism, if that's your political position, then I think no, it's so the inconsistent the with the against, values of the being country. Against that. No, it's not you're in favour, but it's the – and there was a letter a, a couple of months ago that, that Tim organised that 700 business leaders signed, that that was a, that you and I signed, that was against anti-Semitism. But that's, that's a position. Uh, so I don't think that's a political – like I think the war might be a political I think position. for a lot of people it is though. Being against anti-Semitism is a political clearly, position. There were a lot of people who asked who wouldn't sign, so clearly it was. So I had no issue um, with people signing in a personal capacity where they felt like they didn't want their companies to sign up to it. That was, to me, also fine. I, I don't know. Like, you, you've raised a good question. Maybe people will say, I'm biased because I think anti-Semitism is not a political position. I more feel like there's a few core values that we have in I Western civilization. I'd put gay and marriage in that, in that same... Uh, that, well, I think that's a more complicated that certain people. But you, you're, the whole point with gay marriage is that you're allowed to get married, but you can't because you're, you're a man and a man. That, that's I find in a similar vein to anti-Semitism, which is just blatantly racist. You might be, you might be right about your position. I don't know. You might be right about that. Before I tell you what I've done this week, can we just pause for a moment to say, do you remember my joke of the week last week? I do. Well, the joke was... The non-funny joke of the week. The, yeah, the unfunny, exactly, the unfunny joke of the week, which was that Penny Wong made the United Nations, I don't know what to call it, promise yep. that they weren't going to use the $6 million of taxpayer money for yep. terrorism. They promised they wouldn't. <laughs> so within one week, that money has been put on hold and yep. the entire world or, or the Western civilization is, is not forwarding money to them because it turns out, as everyone knew all along, <laughs> they use their infrastructure for Everyone terror. but Penny Wong, it seems. I think Penny Wong might have known <laughs> well. I, I thought it was amazing how quickly she backpedaled away from it. Yep. I, felt, I think she felt personally exposed to it. She was. So and it was like, it's hard because Penny Wong's of the left of, of Labor and the left of Labor has a very strong position on this whole conflict and she has to balance – and Labor's been in a tough position. you got the Greens – they're getting wedged by the Greens on one side and Libs on the other side and they've got this – they're in this really tough – you've got great guys like Josh Burns who are in this invidious position here where you, you've got a party line, you've got Greens pushing you, pushing you super hard. So the Greens are clearly, I think in both of our eyes, the, the, the party that have been most at fault here. I think Labor's in a really tough spot. Well, Green ones probably wants to give a whole tax take to the uh, to, the, uh, to UNRWA. Yeah. yeah, but I, you know, like uh, you know, my view is um, James Patterson. You know, James Patterson, yeah, a senator. Yeah, office is about hundred metres. I think we should get him on this show. Actually, um, so he's been consistently a voice of reason and honesty about all of this type of thing. By the way, you know, so is Richard Miles. Like yeah. Richard Miles is Miles a very yeah. he's a really high quality deputy prime minister and defence minister yeah. and. I think he's been consistent on this as well, but I'm not sure his voice is the loudest voice on issues like this in the no. party. So there you go. Once again, this podcast is, is the, the crystal ball, Absolutely. right? Crystal ball podcast. Yeah. So I tell you what I did this week. You know, the only two things that I really love buying, because, you know, we often have this conversation, we don't like buying stuff. Yeah. The only two things I love buying um, are uh, the main one I would say is books. The other one is video games. Yeah. But the main one is books. Hard books or Kindle? No, I don't do Kindle. I've don't got a Kindle. Kindle and I never use it. I no, only I use Kindle. Do you really? I oh, love Kindles. How can you not love the feel of paper? Don't you hate carrying in your suitcase like seven books? Well, I don't know. What, where am I going with seven books? We've well, got on holiday for 
a three month weeks or something. Yeah. I would much more likely carry one book and then buy books when I was away because my favourite place yeah. to be is inside a bookstore. But if but there's not books, there's not a big, uh, I don't know what books, there's not a big Barnes and Noble, there's not a big bookstore Barnes in the middle of yeah. Thailand. Like, yeah, but you can find a bookstore, but that's true. Like probably in Fiji, you're not going to be going to a lot of bookstores. But, but generally speaking, I love the feeling of books. And yeah. recently, I've been buying books um, from op shops. So my daughter, <laughs> who's my, my kids in, yeah. in, in the room again. And yeah. so um, my daughter, Eden, loves op shops. And so yeah. she schleps me to the op shops. <laughs> you, know what, you know what that means, schlep? Isn't a schlep like someone who's like a fool or an idiot? No. It's oh, it's a schmuck. Close. There's a lot of sure sounding words in Yiddish. So we should say we've got two producers for this episode. We're going to end up with Netflix overhead if we're not careful here in their production. No, so I'll tell you what it means. By the way, this has got to be the only podcast doing Yiddish lessons in 2024. <laughs> so it's like it means to drag, I would say. So you can like – It's a long walk. Well, no, because you can schlep it like – it means to drag. So you can uh-huh. drag a – person or you can drag a thing. So if I say my daughter schlepped me, I mean she dragged me to there. Oh, but okay. I'm being it's being a soft word, like I'm being facetious. <laughs> or if it's something's a long journey, you can say, oh what a schlep that was to go there because it was a drag to go there. And so it's a it's a word that really has been um, co-opted by people who aren't Jewish. New Yorkers well. in particular. Yeah, New York, it's a it's a it's a great word. And so, um, do you know? Do you know that I'm fluent in Yiddish? I don't think we've ever Did had that discussion. That. Doesn't yeah. surprise. <laughs> How many languages are you fluent in? Uh, I think I, I speak three languages. It's pretty good. Well, and yeah. a couple poorly. That's very impressive. Um, so, um, so why was I t- why was I giving Yiddish lessons? Oh yeah, because my daughter. So my daughter slept me to the op shop, which I love, and I found um, this book there. It was three dollars. And it was the autobiography from 1986 of Bob Ansett. Do you remember him? <laughs> North Melbourne president. Oh, good memory. Yeah. So budget rent-a-car yeah. in Australia. And he was on the ads. What was the ad? What was his moniker on the ads? Oh, he was drives your dollar yeah, further. Right. Yeah. Drives your dollar further. It's still got, budget still exists as a brand, doesn't it? It exists, but it's owned by the American parent. Yeah. What's amazing is that budget in Australia through the 70s was not owned by the American parent. They just came and registered the domain. Well, I say domain. <laughs> the, the, yeah, yeah. The, I was about to say like yeah. the Skippon style, yeah. right? And so they just registered the name in Australia and started trading and eventually got the American business's attention and, <laughs> and kind of partnered with the American but business. But they used the same logo and everything, didn't they? Oh. Everything the same. So everything the was the same. Did yeah. they get sued for and, and then they trademark Well, because they, they didn't have the rights in Australia. Uh-huh. It's like this is the old, old times, you know, <laughs> 70s. And so what I thought was amazing about this book, I mean, it is – an incredible read. It's not the most well-written book, to be honest. You, I mean, I don't know why I'm telling this. You can't buy it. I bought it yeah. for $3 in an op shop. I love that. that is I looked on Amazon. On Amazon, it's hundreds of yeah. dollars, yeah. long out of print. Yeah. And um, what's very interesting about it is it gives you a snapshot into what Australia was like in the kind of 60s, 70s, 80s. And, you know, his dad was the founder of Ansett. Reg Ansett. Yeah, and he had like – Somewhere between a terrible relationship and no relationship yeah, with her. He re- didn't his mum move him to the US? Yeah, he, he grew up yeah. in the US and he's got this amazing life story. I mean, you can read about him on Wikipedia. But so it was an amazing insight into Australia in that period. Uh, you know, it, it was a time where uh, you'll love this. So when people went to rent cars in the 70s, firstly, Avis had a monopoly in the airports. Avis did. Yeah, you couldn't. Avis had 80% of, mar- of the market share. You couldn't put your desk in an airport unless you were – Avis had a 10-year government contract. And um, and his dad went on to buy Avis to compete with him and, and Bob Ansett absolutely smashed him. Never spoke to his dad again after that yeah. basically. But so what used to happen is you used to go up to the desk and if you wanted to borrow a, rent a car, 
there was a credit card, but not what we call credit cards today. It was effectively a, a, like a card that you could use to get credit with that particular business. Yeah. So Budget had their own one and Avis had yeah. their own one. And so if you had a credit card, you could – no problem. If you wanted to pay cash, then what they would do – is they would go into the White Pages phone book and look up your name and address and make sure that the listing was under your name ah. in the White Pages and that was enough credentials to be able yeah. to rent a car. I mean, it's such a crazy time. And So the last thing I'll say about this book that I thought was fascinating is he wrote it in 1986. Just before budget collapse, right? Yeah, and he was on top of the world. Yeah. On top of the world. I mean, this guy was a celebrity was in Australia. An American That's, accent, didn't he? Yeah, it was yeah. an American accent and he yeah. was a celebrity. Yeah. And basically... He was uh, excited in the book with the schadenfreude of the fact that his dad had lost control of ANSET in 1979. TNT and Rupert Murdoch, I think. And Rupert Murdoch yeah. and, he had, and his dad had died in 1981 yeah. and he kind of felt like my dad lost control of his business and dead – yeah. Too bad. I'm the winner, right? Yeah. And he was on top of the world in 86. He was literally dancing on his dad's grave at this point. Uh, he would have if he could have, right? Yeah. And three years later, his business went broke and he went bankrupt That's right. and yeah. lost everything. And yeah. he's moved to Noosa and really never rebuilt an empire. No. And it's just incredible to have this moment where – imagine if you would have gone up to him when he had written this book and said, you know – this is going to be the pinnacle of your career yeah. for your whole life when yeah. you're writing this book. And it is a bit of a lesson in hubris, I have yeah. to say, because there is a lot of hubris in this book. And so if you can get your hands on it, I'd, I'd, I mean, you can get your hands on yeah, it because exactly. I'll give it to you to read. Yeah. It's really amazing. And the other book I read, which I'll be like, I think yep. Trevor Sykes, there's been very little written about it. Oh, Trevor Sykes was a great – he's still around, right? But still, he was a great journal sure for the year. Can you Trevor Sykes? He's, he was the Joe Aston before Joe Aston, but, but – a more long form Joe. What Aston. was his? What was his? Pierpont. The, Pierpont. His that's right. So that's he wrote these right. humorous, and a lot of what Joe's did is actually similar to what Sykes did. But so he had this big Pierpont column, I think weekly. And he wrote the annual Pierpont column, which is amazing. He amazing. Right. I love it. That's what I based. I, I created a Pierpont style column every. I wrote it for the Contrarians this year, but I used to write one since two thousand five. Oh, it is very. Rem You're right. Now that I think about what you wrote, it is very reminiscent of that. Yeah, and I wrote. So what Sykes would do is he wrote a book on one kind of thing called the Money Mines on the Poseidon Boom, and he's he's probably his classic. Classic tome was the bold writers, which was fourteen or fifteen separate sort of collapses from the eighties. They talked about yeah. Sporvans in there. I think there was there was a bunch of them, and one of them I'm pretty sure was Bob Anset. I've got to go and get that book. I have heard of it. I read one of his books as it happens. Amazing, and I I wrote a big book, Pigs at the Trough. 2009, 10. Yes. Really, if you look like Trevor Sykes was 10 out of 10, I'm like a 1 out of 10. It was sort of, but I tried to write in the Trevor no, Sykes but I see style. Your book, I see your book online from time to time, like it gets recommended to me. Oh, have it? I never told you that? No. Oh, it's pretty. It's, I must have somehow hacked into your system. I <laughs> know, it's a nice feeling to like get this book recommended to me. Have you read, you ever read my book, have you? I'm, I will, I'm going to say it's on my Which is a bit my, of a, I can't even get my, my co-host to, uh, to read my book. You know, my uh, problem is that I buy more books than I can read. That is the problem with loving books. Yeah. Have I dug my way out of that question yet or not? Not really. Oh. Um, well, at one point, so my book was published by John Wiley. Uh, the really, the people there were amazing. They sort of stopped publishing business books not long after this. I think maybe my book was precipitated the doom. But <laughs> they now do like they might do like if you're a famous person, a biography or something like that. But mine was a chapter by chapter. I talked about Babcock and Brown. Now that, and, I just want to say, now that we're videoing this, people can see our problems, which is how much Adam bangs the table when it <laughs> it's, on, it's on video for all to see. Yeah. Every time you hear a bang, that's Adam speaking with his hands. I actually forgot it. we were being filmed. So <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so at one point, so they. Did a print run of the book and we sold. I think we sold five or six thousand. So it was a decent. It's actually classified as five best. or six thousand. I think so. That's unbelievable. As, um, 
Chris Foss is bestseller in Australia because the bar's low. And they, they said that to me- That is a lot of books. Well, they must have printed, obviously, too many. Obviously, had far higher expectations of this book than, than warranted. So they came to me and said, do you want to buy 10,000 books? I said, no. So they must have just pulped these 10,000 books. I don't know what, they, I doubt oh, they kept it in a yeah, warehouse. That, that, that does happen. Like I, I've heard a lot of authors have said to me, they buy a large number of their own books and effectively give them away or sell yeah. them through their own Gabby website or whatever. Yeah, yeah Gabby Nessie would never tell me how many they, books they actually sold. a few actually. But I know a lot here. of people that have read the book and people yeah. – I don't say this. Uh, nothing would make me happier than to just make fun of them on this podcast. <laughs> but actually people rave about their book. Like people – so many people have found Gabby's it book. so useful. Yeah, yeah, it's a great book. I, I, people yeah, will come to me, the famous – don't do the back door, don't do the front door, the side door. Yeah. I reckon there's – at least six people have come to me and said that. Yeah. Like as a – Let me tell you the other book I read and we're gonna, we'll, and then I'll stop talking. <laughs> so have you ever heard of a guy who's passed away now called Jerry Weintraub? Oh, the name rings a bell but I couldn't tell you what he did. He was one of the great Hollywood people is okay. the way I'd describe it. So he started off as a music agent yep. and then produced TV shows and produced Broadway so shows and produced character. movies – well, like the Oceans movies are the ones that you would know him. Yeah, Ocean's 11, 11, 11, 12, 12 oh, 13. Okay, yeah. So he did those. And, there was um, an original one as well. There was Ocean Levels in the 60s. Correct. So he didn't do that. Okay. But, um, but he did those kind of modern yeah, ones. Okay. He, he, did, he did tons of stuff. Tons right. of stuff. And he wrote this autobiography and I bought it. You know, the way I buy books mostly is either I just come across them in a store, yeah. an op shop or whatever, or like some, a book that I'm reading – the person will talk about another book that they like yep. and then I'll go and buy that book. Yeah, it's kind it. of the stepping stones, right? I, don't, I kind of remember why I bought this book. Someone yep. must have spoken about it in a book. Um, it was so entertaining and yeah. so interesting. And th- I mean, this guy was like Elvis's touring agent <laughs> and Sinatra's agent <laughs> and like the stories are incredible. And I thought what was most amazing about this book and the reason I'd recommend it to people is – I'm going to say there are three kinds of business books. I don't know. I always just say three because that's an easy number to wrap your head around for a list, (laughs) right? So there are three kinds of business books. One is some basics you need to know about business in order to operate a business. So if you don't know accounting, you better go read a book and figure out accounting, which is what I do. Dry, hard read those books. Yeah. I read – I literally in the global financial crisis, I literally went on a holiday – to Kingscliff and sat in the spa and read Accounting for Dummies. That's actually what I did. And so there's some base knowledge that – You you don't have an accounting degree. No, actually what I thought as I was reading that book is, oh, my God, like I can't believe I didn't know any of this. The (laughs) the depth of the unconscious incompetence was overwhelming. And so um, so that really changed my life. And so there's that category of book. Then there's this second category of book that I'd call – a brief idea that gets turned into 250 pages. Yeah. That's most business books, <laughs> right? Like the, like the long tail, you know, the book, The Long Tail, about right. how it, it's like the classic book of how if you plot the, f- the frequency of purchasing across, like, say, books, yeah. what you have is a few bestsellers that get heaps of okay. purchasing, but yeah. then this long tail of small numbers of purchases, but actually it adds up to a lot more. Like the Amazon, than, that's Amazon's that's the Amazon business model. Yeah. And so that's an example, or like, so most of these books are like a simple idea yeah. that. Nobody will buy a 30-page book because yep. of the economics of yeah, publishing. Of and so they have to say – Drag oh. it out. Yeah, they make a wide article and then they say, well, we better turn this into a book. Yeah. And so 250 pages of examples and like verbose explanations. Yeah. So I've tried to stop reading those books or yeah. what I'll try and read is the first bit of it. Oh, I, hate those. I hate those first two categories. And then move on. Yeah. And so um, – and so the books, there are books like Predictably Irrational, which is a Dan Ariely book about behavioural economics. It's great, but you don't need to read the whole book. Yeah. Just read the first bit. So yeah. I try not to read those books. Yeah. But the best books, I think, are these autobiographies 100%. where people are telling you – Or biographies. Or I biographies. Think, yeah. But the autobiographies are interesting to me because not only do they tell you what the person has done – because biographies do that as well. Yeah. 
but they kind of provide this first-person view of how the person did it as well. And effectively, you can just learn what they did and copy it. <laughs> and this book with, about Jerry Weintraub, like – He's got so much chutzpah, this guy. Yeah. This is like a Yiddish uh, yeah. session, right? Yeah. You know what that one means, don't you? Chutzpah? Yeah, nerve, basically. Or, and so Boldness. Bold, exactly. Yeah. Oh, maybe you call it hustle in this yeah, age, right? Yeah. And so, um, and so he, there's so much hustle in such incredible yeah. ways. And like he faked a heart attack <laughs> inside a Broadway <laughs> show so that he could get the two writers to go out with him and worry <laughs> about him so he could negotiate a deal <laughs> with them ahead of all the other better producers. I mean, that is – like, yeah. I would not be doing that, okay? And so uh, that book I would highly recommend just as a way to look at it and say, I've got to be bolder and take more risks in business. That's a great book for I for think that. there's – I think I'd put biographies in the same category as order, which I think I, they're my, that's my favorite category. Yeah. And probably the fourth category is the Trevor Sykes, Adam Schwab category. Yeah. I met Trevor Sykes in very big writing, Adam Schwab very small writing, yeah. uh, which is the kind of. You've, you're underselling yourself style. if you've sold 5,000, 6,000 copies. And by there's, the way. there's other people who've written that, sort of, where they'll sort of opine on it's part biographical of a company, but it's also part sort of lessons. So it's almost a combination of. If you look at my picture yes. drop book, it's a combination of one and three. So I talk about companies and I give like yeah. lessons as to this is what I did wrong. This is what Bad Conquer Brown did wrong. This is what Olco did wrong. This is what Telstra did wrong when Soldier Hero was running it. Um, just before we move on to our, our – I want to tell you what Jerry Weintraub's autobiographer, so that's what I'm typing in to see what it's called. Because yeah. it, it exactly is what you've just said there, which is – it's called When when I Stop Talking, You'll Know I'm Dead. And <laughs> is he dead? He's dead. Okay. Uh, well, so disappointed because it was from 2010, this book, and oh, yeah. there's a photo of him on the front cover. He's a bit of an older guy. Yeah. And then I didn't know when it was from. I thought it was a new book. Yeah. And then I looked and it was from 2010 and he died like five years later. Yeah, and like sad. I was kind of disappointed yeah. about, about that, obviously. And so, but the subtext of the book or the subtitle is Useful Stories from a Persuasive Man. Yeah. That is a great subtitle for this book. That's exactly what this book is. Yeah. My favorite genre of books is it's got to call it business biography. Yeah. So Brad Stone's book on two books on Amazon yep. and everything. It's a classic. Actually, hasn't been that many lately. It's been. Oh, there was the Elon Musk book. That's it was huge. Yeah, but the Walter the Walter, Walter Isaac, Isaac one. Isaac, yeah, yeah. Isaac I haven't one. read that. I haven't read it either. But I've, I heard it was a bit of a hagiography, so sure I haven't been desperate I to read it. I think a lot of these. And I've read are, a Musk one already. Problem, right? Yeah. Like they're just his Jobs one was good. Yeah, oh, I don't think I read that. That's either. A, that's worth a read. Uh, you know what drives me crazy is when people quote Steve Jobs. In fact, if I'm sitting in a room <laughs> and someone's doing a brand presentation to me about something and they talk about Apple, like my brain immediately. <laughs> off. It's like, you're not going to do that. So forget about that. <laughs> there are no lessons for you from that. And like when people quote Steve Jobs, yeah. like it's such a selective quoting. Like yeah. there are so many problematic things about yeah. it anyway. I, I, my Who's the bad guy? Oh, my brain the, turns off when yeah. people start quoting him as well. Yeah. I will tell you one Steve Jobs quote that I like, <laughs> <laughs> which is I'm going to – Butcher it a bit, but this is a great quote, which is somewhere between the janitor and the president, the buck stops with you. Or so, I think that is a good quote yeah. about people taking personal responsibility. Yeah. If I ever, ever come out with a Steve Jobs quote while we're talking, you shut me down immediately. Yeah. I hate them. And I've got many issues with Steve Jobs. The one thing I'd say positively about Steve Jobs is nobody's done more for founders than Steve Jobs in terms of like everything that – The got, unrealistic you, expectations of success, is that what well, you not mean? not so much that, but if you look at everything people – Call, the so-called corporate experts say founders shouldn't do. Steve Jobs kind of did. Or so he, yeah. he came back when people say you should never come back. He Apple was classic up and spoke. Everything sort of came back to Steve. And everybody says you can't have that. You've got to have the Google sort of delegation model or whatever or the Amazon. Like, and, and Steve Jobs proved uh, – 
Apple till recently was the most valuable business in the world, really built in Steve Jobs' image. And I know obviously Tim Cook's yeah. been running it since it was 300 billion, now it's two, 3 trillion. But if you look at almost every product that Apple that Apple sells, it's a Steve Jobs product, really. And the whole approach to, to product this is, but I will say this kind of, maybe you'd call it an irony. I would call it a view, a, cl- a view of, cl- a cl- I don't know, so like a clarity about what drives business, which is this. So many startups have this fixation, and this is bigger businesses as well, they have this fixation on culture and they focus all this attention on culture and all, all this motherhood statements about culture this and yeah. culture that and measure culture and assess culture. Yeah. When you look at Steve Jobs, you look at Elon Musk, <laughs> yeah. there can be no worse ads for culture. By the way, Uber was even worse, right? Yeah. Uber had to get lost the CEO because of it. Yeah. Like Elon Musk, no one fires him because he's too good. Yeah. And so, um, But really – these businesses that are held in the highest esteem by founders are the ones that spit in the face of a fixation with yeah. culture, right? They t- treat their employees terribly. Well, I think there's, a, there's probably a middle ground. <laughs> I'm uh, sure that yeah. you can't pull off stuff like Elon Musk if you're not Elon Musk. And let's face it, no one else is Elon Musk. But that, I'm not sure if Elon Musk treats his employees terribly. Terribly. Not, does, does SpaceX treat their employees terribly? Ter- like nobody – people quit. People talk about how there is just this intense pressure and – There's definitely pressure, like, but like I'm not sure that's uh, – Oh, no, it's not good. Go and read some books about what he did, how he spoke to the Twitter employees when he walked yeah, in Yeah, Twitter's there. different because he inherited Twitter. Like, uh, and, and I, it, you read some things about how he treats his employees. Like, yeah. it's not good. It's yeah. not good. But people take it <laughs> because he's so incredible and they just – ultimately what people want is to be a part of something that's yeah. bigger than themselves and they love an inspirational leader that gives them something to believe in. And I'm not advocating for this kind of treatment. Like, I think – you, you can only get away with it if you're incredible, yeah. but it is instructive in some ways that the businesses that are the most successful, driven by the most amazing leaders, they have just have no fixation whatsoever on ticking the motherhood boxes of culture. You probably put Amazon in that category as well. I yeah. don't think working It's brutal. Amazon, Amazon yeah. culture is brutal. 100%. And ironically, they bought Zappos, which probably had the extreme opposite of culture. Yeah. Uh, which was like there was no managers. It was just an absolute shit show there. Like I think unlimited leave. It was just every sort of – and they basically wound it all back. And and so you got Tony Shea who was lauded as this incredible executive. But I think in, in as time's gone by, obviously dried in tragic circumstances, effectively a junkie who, who overdosed. But if you look at the legacy of – forget Tony Shea, the sort of drug addict, Tony Shea, the executive. I think that, that whole Tony Shea executive culture has been completely debunked. Well, that's a sad story, right? It's a guy who is publicly and commercially completely fixated on happiness as the core mm. driver and then such a sad person yeah. in reality, right? It's just like, that's a horrible story. Yeah. On that note, why don't we take a super quick break? We'll be back in 30 seconds with our next story on Tesla and rental cars. So, idea, what do you think of the challenge of hiring developers and product managers these days? That's got to be one of the toughest parts of uh, of growing a business, especially with the uh, demand for talent at the moment. I couldn't agree more. And that's why at Luxury Escapes, we boost our onshore team with developers from Petona, a fully Australian-owned and managed platform that was built to help businesses scale up with less capital, ultimately getting profitable faster. With Petona, they'll help you scale or build your team with incredible talent in places like Sri Lanka, Philippines, or India, via a permanent remote staff or contractors. So should I assume that based on um, your enthusiasm, you've been working with Petona and you like them? 
I actually used to be really skeptical of hiring any developers offshore. But the beauty of Petona is it's owned and operated by Australians and led by Simon Lee, who's built and scaled multiple tech businesses. So you can really trust them to find great talent. We actually started with just a couple of resources and scaled to more than 15 team members. So Petona are perfect for businesses looking to scale. If you're pre-product, they're probably not for you. But they work with smaller businesses as well as big enterprise clients, including Treasury Wine Estates, Accolade Wines, Luxury Escapes, of course, Little Birdie, Impos, and Old Sale. If you're struggling to find and scale a tech team, then go to the Petona website at petona.com.au and click on Get Started. So we talked a few weeks ago about the rental car industry. We got lots of great feedback about how people hate that industry. Actually, Steve Hoy sent me a uh, a link. Apparently, Hertz. Uh, we talked some of our negative experiences, and I'll talk about another negative experience yeah. I've forgotten. But Steve, Steve sent me a link that Hertz is so bad. They actually, they had such little control over what they were doing. Is people would rent a Hertz car, and Hertz didn't know what the hell was going on. They actually went reported the cars as stolen. This happened like dozens of times and people were getting arrested oh in the States God. because these Hertz guys are such idiots. So like the people say so people in good faith pay Hertz, rent Hertz and they get, they get pulled over and chucked in jail for, for two or three days. Cars. For a stolen car. Well, we should say, you know, Bob Ansett, when he was running budget or like his whole business pitch was that the treatment you would get as a customer yeah. with budget was the, the core competitive differentiator. Because he said, the price is not going to win me customers yeah. and the cars are all the same. Yeah. And so all I've got is my personality yeah. and great service. And that was his fixation. He used to make every single person in the entire company from himself down spend one day hmm. at the desk serving customers every yeah. month. That's a good idea. So that's – I mean, that's – that. That's hit the opportunity that he saw in car rentals. I think that same opportunity still exists. Anyway, keep talking yeah. about what you're talking about. So, <laughs> so in the latest disaster, Hertz, you won't be shocked to know that they are, they're selling a third of its electric fleet. So about two years ago, Hertz, to great fanfare, announced that they were going to buy 100,000 Teslas and then 65,000 Polestars. And that actually led to Tesla share price breaking through $1 trillion US for the first time. And that actually period actually marked the zenith of Tesla. And it's been pretty much downhill ever since. And last week, the company warned that both growth and profitability will be a lot lower this year. Within 24 hours, $120 billion, that's Australian, or $80 billion US was wiped off Tesla's share price. Just to show how much that was. BMW as an entire business, one of the world's best car businesses worth US $60 billion. So Tesla lost more in one session than BMW has been able to build in <laughs> like 100 years. So what did Tesla's market fall to when they lost? I that? think it's about five, US $574 billion now. So it was, at, it was at almost 700 But bear in mind, Tesla's now still worth more than everyone else, every well, other car business Tesla combined. is a tech company. Poor BMW, they just make cars. <laughs> but Tesla gets to be a tech company. Well, Tesla, as you remember, one of my predictions uh, from last year was the Magnificent 7 will be no longer <laughs> Longer magnificent, yeah. And we've seen the first straw to drop. That's Tesla. Is you know, argue Tesla's no longer magnificent. That's that's the sheen has really come off this now. It's still grossly overpriced. Well, it's happened before though with this business. It has, and that's this true. is a roller coaster. Yeah. This company. Yeah. This seems worse. Like this, the, the growth. Firstly, Tesla. I'm not sure how much how much work you've done on this, but Tesla's margins been smashed. So Tesla, Elon Musk, I think correctly. Saw demand staggering and, and dropped the price, so mm. got got ahead of the game. Uh, so its margins dropped. That's yeah. that's sort of intentional, but it's also seen BYD, so Belgian Dreams, the big Chinese yeah. manufacturers, now overtaken in yeah, terms of cars sold. That. So they're losing volume and they're losing margin. So one of the one thing that Tesla bulls could point to in the last couple of years is they were they're a high margin business. They're way high margins than every other yes. car company, and they're growing. Plus, you got EVs. Are just oh, I'm a Tesla driver. I love the Tesla. So you got a great product. You got a, a 
term that's, that's, that's massive and that you're barely sort of scratching the surface of and you've got a high margin business it, it, with great D2C. It reminds model. me of when we spoke about oh, – was last week or the week before about the um, sh- runners businesses and there was last week last week and there was on running yeah and it has just a much larger margin than anybody else yep. has driven by its brand because it sells upmarket shoes absolutely it had some similarities with Tesla in terms of its positioning but as you're about to say you know Tesla has cut its margins and moved its cars down market from a price yep. perspective as well so we've talked about Tesla in the past but are, are you as nervous about Tesla, so it's a five, still a US $575 billion. As Scott Galloway says, this business could, in my view, lose 70, 80% of its value and still be overpriced. Still be the most expensive car so company I, in the world. So I completely agree with that. Let me tell you my views of Tesla, which is a bigger picture views. So the concerns that I had with Tesla from pretty early on, by the way, the biggest way, the best way to destroy a hedge fund is to short Tesla. Because, <laughs> yeah. like, as I've said before, the number one rule in I think finance is don't short a religion. Yeah. And Tesla is one of the greatest religions in the commercial world. It's been less religious lately. Well, it's though, been less religious since Musk. Musk well, well he, he undertook his own sacrilege, didn't yeah. he? By turning out to be exactly the opposite to what all of the acolytes of Tesla yeah. believed in with yeah. what he was doing at Twitter. So, yeah, he was like his own devil effectively yeah. to his own brand. But my biggest concern with Tesla was – how what was going to be their long term competitive advantage? And in fact, when they went and bought Solar City, which everyone was yep. skeptical about because it was his cousin, cousin. or something, yeah. what I thought then was a bit different to others. I thought was that Kimball was that his brother? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm not really familiar with yeah. the family tree, but like, um, but um, <laughs> the genealogy of uh, he's like a yeah, it was his cousin. Yeah. I think Kimball's his brother. I think Kimball you're right. His brother. I don't yeah. know. What I thought when they bought that is maybe this is a company that is going to see its competitive differentiator as energy and they'll own this battery infrastructure that will be fundamentally better than anyone else in the world. And then I thought, well, that's interesting. So they're making cars, but really they're the equivalent of the whole oil industry was what that has been to the automotive sector. And that's interesting. But then it turned out they really don't have any long-term sustainable advantage in batteries either. And so what... There's a real argument. I think Toyota's working on that solid state, whatever that battery is, that you can charge in 12 minutes and uh, it hasn't worked yet, there's plenty of stuff. Yeah, there's no confidence that Tesla is going to maintain some kind of technology edge over the long term, okay? It's Uh, it's almost inconceivable. And so then you say, well, what does it have going for it? It has a brand. So that's its biggest asset in my view. It has this brand. It's been diminished in the last... 18 months, but yeah, it's still got a good brand. Exactly. So I think the worst thing that Elon Musk could have done for that brand was buy Twitter. Yeah, 100%. And so that has destroyed brand value. And it's also led to him running out of cash, as in he's still very wealthy. Personally, you mean. not cashed up. Yeah, yeah. So and that and that leads to the whole debacle where he's asking now for $75 billion extra options. And you've got this Tesla board that's a disaster led by Australia's Robin Denham, who's in – you got to feel for Robin in a way, but she's a, been a terrible chairperson. Like well, she's been as good as she could possibly be in that well, business. I'm not sure possibly be. Like, the board's being – when, you when, you're, when you're being sued as a board by shareholders, that's, that's not a – you haven't done a great job. So I do feel sorry for her, but she's done a terrible job. I think they're the same. She, her job was to tame a lion – now, and the lion's eaten her. It's bitten her leg off. The lion so, eats everything and everyone away from the lion. Yeah. Like, she signed up for a job and they said, we'll pay you a ton of money yeah. to tame a lion and to keep it in your house. She's now, made I'd $500 say, billion I million have, dollars I would have, I would have taken that job as well 
in a flash. Yeah. And I would I don't think I would have done any better than her. The lion would have just bitten my leg off. But you know, the amazing <laughs> thing is the pockets that you've got where you've got no legs left, they're full <laughs> of money. Yeah. And so I'll take it because they'll get artificial legs. And yeah. so like, uh, like, I don't think we can blame her. I'm not blaming her. I'm saying that she's been the most ineffectual chairman probably in the history of the no, but you New York Stock Exchange. Well, well, and she's made 500 million bucks in the process. Well, the good news for that comment, Oh, she's been the most ineffective chairman on the New York Stock Exchange. Okay, I thought you were saying of all time, and I thought you just let Richard Goiter off the hook, so there's, <laughs> there's something. Um, so I think, you know, Tesla, they don't have an advantage on their vehicles because if you look at their cars and you sit in them, and like, yep. they're not very nice compared to like what the Audi Porsche group is Can putting I just jump, actually jump in because I wanted to bring this up earlier, but yep. uh, I sat in my first Kia electric this week. So, Oh, how amazing has Kia done? Uh, we, so we talked about, you know, we talked about partnerships last yeah. couple of weeks. So I jumped on the Uber app and I'm like, you I'm now an Uber One member. And if you're in, I went to the tennis this you're week. You're an Uber One member. I told you I joined Uber One a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> like a couple of months ago. So I joined Uber One. I spoke to Tim from Toro and, and he used yeah. to work at Uber and he showed me how much money he saved through it. So I thought, well, Tim saved 1500 bucks a year. Yeah. Is that? Anyway, so I jumped Life on Uber One. value infinity because even after you die, you're not going to be able to cancel it. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so anyway, I've joined um, Uber One and because I, Within five kilometres of the Australian Open, they give you a free Kia. So it's part of the Kia sponsorship of, of the tennis that's sort of done this. So you, I saved 20 bucks on the Uber. So I went. So if you get within five kilometres of the Australian Open and yeah. you order an Uber. You order an Uber. It's free. And you get it. You could order a Kia. Yeah. It has to be a Kia. And well, you who to wouldn't Uber order a Kia? Oh, because there aren't that many probably. Oh, and yeah, the weight can be longer and I think you only get to do it once. I see. But, uh, oh, so, I see. All right. So I did it once and so I sat in this Kia. What a good partnership. Well, amazing partner for a start. Talk about shit. Like, so I meet him, I sit in there, my, my wife doesn't love the Tesla. So she drives the BMW. Yeah. I, I love the Tesla. She goes, she goes, she goes, we should get this. So like, it hasn't co- cost Kia, it cost Kia like five bucks and Uber's got this, Probably right. I'm sure Kia's paying yeah. Uber for this. So great win for Uber because I've gone, how good is this? This might be Uber's ticket to sustainable margins. <laughs> Somebody else paying for everything. Well, Uber's share price is now like $100 billion. Uber's actually done yeah. really well in the last few months. But in terms of promotion, so I've now been in a Kia. I'm now a massive Kia yeah. fan. It's a great, great partnership. But so you've got, to your point, where we got to a second ago, so you've got Kia and BYD who have great products. Polestar, which has actually been smacked. Polestar share price down to $6 billion. It's owned yeah. by Geely, that yeah. Chinese yeah. Volvo business. That's actually dropped like 70 or 80%. So you've got the whole Audi group that's putting out electric cars. Yeah, I think the BMW, my cousin drives it. My cousin Alan drives a BMW electric. He loves it. He says it's a great car. Yeah. I think there's a massive waiting list for them. So you've got BMW, you've got the Audi Volkswagen group who are a bit behind them. You've got Toyota potentially with their thing. So well, Toyota's coming. I mean, they're the greatest car company in the world. So Toyota's worth like 250 billion US. So it's Tesla at 574, Toyota yeah. at 250, and then it's got everyone else up. Every one of these cars, from a in my view, from a construction point of view, is better than the Tesla. Like the doors close more properly and the insides are nicer. I find my Tesla very good. Like, I, I know you're critical. I find actually Tesla. Yeah, because your your one that came off the production line had the doors that lined up perfectly with the sills. Possibly. Like, yeah. You know, I think nobody can match Toyota's yeah. just consistency of yeah. quality, right? I, I think Kia, if you look at a, a brand in that industry – yeah that has had the most dramatic last 10 years. It's got to be Kia. Like their designs are as good as any European car now. The quality of manufacturing people rave about, the warranties, they've made the transition to electric as effectively as any company. They are. But can they bring that They've shaken off the – you know, South Korean cars had this negative reputation 20 years ago. They've shaken that off. I think it's still got the reputation of being probably not as premium – as the as it so the I think the cars are more premium than the brand yeah. if that makes sense so yes I agree with you but that's how it goes that's how that's what happens when you build brand value right like yeah. the product gets out ahead of the brand and it pulls the brand up and so do you can think here is a work can you give me another example of that of that happening yeah. like with emerging brands well 
I mean, I I'm talking about existing because Kia's a long. Kia's been a brand for 20, 30 years or whatever. Yeah, but like that's the whole way that the whole Chinese um, industry started. It's the whole of the Japanese industry after World War Two. Oh, just yeah, with this like negative, Sonic, maybe this yeah, negative yeah. view of made in Japan. You yeah. know, there's this story which is Samsung a true. Samsung probably is or which is obviously Korean. There's probably a Korean. similar example. You know, there's this story which is true about post-war Japan. They, they want they didn't want to write made in Japan. And there's a city and they named this area. USA, USA, so they could write made in <laughs> USA, made in USA. That's a true story. And so, it's like, like Mac is having hundred percent Australian. Yeah, band. that's right. Yeah. And so, uh, who do you think's got a better brand, Hyundai or Kia, or same? Oh, Kia's better than the Hyundai. I would have thought. Because so, yeah. I think that's flipped in the last. What do you guys yeah. think, Hyundai or Kia? I would have thought Hyundai. I also would have thought Hyundai. Yeah, well, okay. there you go. But whatever, let's call them neck and neck. Like, yeah. Hyundai was miles ahead of Kia as a brand. Isn't there any cross ownership there between those two? I don't know. Well, the, every, all those Koreans, you know, are all owned by the, the conglomerates. Yeah, like the conglomerates, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so I agree with you. Like, I think uh, it's hard for me to see what Tesla's, long, Tesla's long-term competitive advantage is. If you remember, the first thing they did was to take the Lotus Elise and turn it yep. into an electric car and call it the Roadster. Yeah. That was an incredible entry into a market. Yeah. What... Musk has built with Tesla is remarkable, yeah. but I don't think there's any long-term competitive advantage in that business. And so if you said to me, do I think that business could go to zero, I would say yes. Like uh, it's car companies, it's a hard business to run. It's yeah. very capital intensive. They've, very, they've done very well with verticalizing the production. That's their and, big strength. Yeah. But and the sales, it, no no dealers, they own their dealerships. Oh, That's if a, you say to me, do I think they've revolutionized the car industry? No doubt about it. Yes, they have. But, you know, often the company that revolutionizes the yep. industry doesn't survive. It's, just, it's the Apple, it's number two. Yeah, and so, you know, we've had this conversation before. Like if both of us, I think, feel – the more amazing of Elon Musk's companies is SpaceX. Yep. Like Tesla is not the most amazing of his companies. Sorry. And I hope it survives. I, I do. And I think it probably will survive. In the end, it would surprise me if it stays independent over the long term. I think it will get gobbled up by, by a Chinese company at some yep. point. Potentially. Just before we move on, just touch on the rental car thing because my wife uh, informed me I'm mistakenly – remember I told you we've never had a really bad rental car experience. Yep. And – Actually, we have. So, so, and my wife goes, "Don't you?" Remember? I did find it implausible when you said you'd never had one. Yeah, oh, well, well, you were right, and I was wrong. And my wife goes, "Don't you remember what happened like eighteen months ago at Centre Park?" So, Centre Parks is this uh, UK club med style. It's a really incredible business. We've had a different episode. So, we were going to Centre. We're going to the Centre Park place, which is like a really nice resort in sort of rural United Kingdom. So, we rented this car. So I made a reservation, and my wife walks up there and they said, "Oh, the car's not here." And I said, it's in Luton, which is like an hour away. So right. anyway, two hours later, we get the car. So, we're at two hours. so it wasn't catastrophic, which is probably why I forgot that bit. But it was two hours Pretty late. Pretty bad. But the, the bad bit it gets worse. So we, we get, went in this car. We go to this. We drive three hours to this place called Centre Parks, having a great time. And we get a call from the rental car company saying, uh, we, we, sorry, we actually forgot to register this, this car. You need to take it back. And we said, we're three hours away. And they said, well, otherwise you might get a $1,000 fine if, they, if the police catch you. I said, but you guys stuffed it up. Why don't you come and switch it for us? And they go, no, we can't switch it for you. Uh, so we're going back and forth over like probably over 24 hours saying, oh, no, we're not taking the car back. It's going to six hours away. I'm not driving yeah. six hours like, for you or your stuff up. They said, we're not coming and getting it. And you're risking the fine. So they kind of had us by the, by the balls there. It turns out next day they call, actually, we made a mistake. There was the, we, have, we, have, we have renewed the registration. We we're all just wrong. So how inept are these guys oh, that so, so A, they didn't have the car there. B, they said we're going to drive. Imagine if we'd driven six hours and they said, actually, no, we didn't need you to drive six hours. You can go back to your holiday oh now. God. Like, because this is the Bob Ansett episode, <laughs> I just want to say like he was so prescient in understanding this industry. Everything is the same 
There is no differentiator. All you've got is service. Yeah. And yet, what is the number one thing that they do badly? <laughs> service. It's the same price, the same cars, yeah. everything is the same except <laughs> service and even that is the same. It's all terrible. It's, and, and when we always talk about, about Toro, I, I can't wait for these guys to dismember this, in, this industry like Arnold Schwarzenegger did in The Running Man to, to those guys. <laughs> like, there's no greater industry that deserves to be spat up, uh, ingested and spat out in the rental car industry. They're just an absolute disgrace. I totally agree with you though when you said the other – and I was arguing with you the other week about <laughs> Toro and about – prices for Turo, yep. but I think I've come around to your view, which is as long as they're competitive with the rental car industry, their service is so much better yep. that I would much rather use them. And, I, you know, in these industries where almost every element of the product is commoditized, yep. the only feature that you have left, you've got two features left, price, because yep. that becomes a feature, yep. and service. And you don't want price to be a feature, that ruins your whole business. Yep. And so all you've got is service as your core product feature. Yeah. And I think Turo is differentiating on service. I think where Turo also slightly differentiates, and this is sort of a sub-price thing, is you actually get much better cars. So you can get a, a Tesla or you get a BMW for basically the same price as you get like a Corolla usually. Well, no, so. but you're arguing price, not car, because I can get those cars from rental car companies. They're just more expensive. So that's a price argument, not a product it argument. Is, it is, but I'm talking about if I'm pricing at the same range. So if I'm looking to spend 80 bucks a day or yes. whatever, 100 bucks a day, like Toro will have all sorts of cars. Like as in they'll have super – they don't really differentiate in terms of well, price. Well, I believe that would be called drive your, drives your dollar further. It would be. Uh, Thanks, Bob. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I, I think – even if the cars were the same, though, I know I hear you, they're different. Yeah. But even if they were the same, I agree, and you I got agree. that service, yeah. you would still use it. I would. You would still use it. Yeah. That was great. We'll, we'll pop to a super quick break uh, back in 30 seconds with our next story on new fashion business models. Adir, what's your experience been with SEO across all the businesses you've worked with? Well, I actually had an agency that did SEO at one point in time. And so through that, I, I was not the SEO guy. And through that, I got some insight into just how um, complicated and sophisticated SEO is. And since then, I've tried a variety of different people and solutions. And it's a bit of a mix and match for me. I don't have a very sharp answer for you on that. We're the same. We're, I reckon we've cycled through a dozen agencies before we discovered Portal Ventures. And these guys are the real deal. We've actually used them at Luxury Escapes and our SEO traffic has jumped dramatically. We also use them in a business called Bookwell, which I used to chair. And the SEO there was so good, we actually were able to sell the business to the global leader, almost purely based on how much organic traffic we had from SEO. The guys at Portal Ventures work with some of the best Australian marketplaces and e-commerce businesses, including Flipper, Programmer, Mad Paws, Camplify, and AutoGuru. These guys are literally the best of the best. Exclusive to Contrarians listeners, the team at Portal will give you a free one-hour consultation if you mention Contrarians. To get in touch with Mike and the team, call them on 1300 121 261 or go to www.portal.ventures. And we're back. And the Wall Street Journal had a fascinating story uh, last week. And I, I love talking about these businesses. I'm not sure if you will as well, but they had a, a story on Rent the Runway and Stitch Fix, which yep. I'm not sure that many of our listeners will be super understanding of these businesses, but I know I've done a lot of work on them over the years and I really like talking about them. So Rent the Runway is essentially a rental, a clothing rental business. So there are, there are versions of this in, in Australia. So if you want to rent a, they generally a subscription model. 
Mm. So they started off, you want to rent a ball gown, you pay hundred bucks renting a gown that would have cost you a thousand. Rent the runway now, basically it's a subscription business. You pay between 80 and 250 mm. US a month. And Up get, market. Like if you want to rent Diane von Furstenberg, yeah, but also the doing, wife of Barry Diller, by the way. Absolutely. You know, you know absolutely. that, right? Yeah. yeah. That's um, where you go and rent it. Yeah, and they, yeah. they both donate all that money to that park in New York City next to the High Line. Well, um, I think Barry Diller was one of the f- driving forces behind the High Line, including yeah. funding it and making yeah, it happen. So. He um, also did that island, you know, the, that new island. That's what I'm talking about, the island thing. Oh, that, he yeah. did that as well. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah that was thing. even more him. Yeah, yeah, that was 100% him. Anyway, so, uh, but yeah, they, they generally work with sort of higher end, but not just higher end, but higher end. And Stitch mm-hmm. Fix is more of your personal stylist. So I'll say, Adi, you, you, look, you look great in, a, in this grey jacket. So we'll, here's a grey jacket from yep. Ted Baker. And Stitch Fix sells stuff. Yeah, that's their business. Yeah, but, they but sell the business stuff. is they style you and then they style. It's a bit like Trunk Club, which doesn't exist anymore. They style you and then they send you a box. Yep, and then whatever you like, you keep and pay for. Yep, and whatever and you, you don't back. like, you send back. Exactly. Whereas Rent the Runway, you rent stuff on exactly. a subscription. Yep. The cost of a subscription to Stitch Fix when they quote their three million subscribers, you know so what rent, they rent, rent the Runway. No, no, I mean Stitch Fix. Oh, okay, so they've got three million subscribers. Okay, yeah. Do you know what the cost of their subscription is? Zero. Correct. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. It, these businesses, whilst they sound great in theory, haven't done so well in terms of the market. So Rent the Runway has dropped. Haven't done so well. Well, it's dropped ninety eight percent. Understatement so, of the yeah. year. <laughs> so it dropped ninety eight percent. It's worth about US fifty million. It's essentially a penny stock. It's it's basically yep. trading for scrap. Uh, Stitch Fix hasn't been as bad. It's worth US three seventy. So it's just dropped off about ninety seven percent as well. But yeah, it was on a higher they're base. They're falling the same. Yeah. But the difference is that Stitch Fix IPO'd in 2017. Yeah, exactly. And so it hasn't just been a one-way trip. Yeah. Whereas Rent the Runway has been a one-way trip from their IPO straight down. And Rent the Runway, like I remember Scott Galloway talked about Rent the Runway before. It was, there was nothing more inevitable. It launched at the peak of the ZERP era, the zero interest rate policy yeah. era. So this is the height of the boom. There was nothing more sure than this business was going to go to close. I think Jen Hyman, who's the CEO and founder, is actually a pretty impressive well, yeah. CEO. I know, she's certainly the founder. She's pretty impressive person. She's back as CEO. Yeah, back as CEO now, but – my favourite thing about Rent the Runway is that your word velocity of 2,000 words a second, <laughs> you can't really say it, so it just turns into one long mumble of rrr, rrr. That's my uh, favourite uh, thing about uh, that RTR. business. Yeah, RTR, that's what you yeah. should call it, RTR. But if you look at – I actually think my wife occasionally uses Rent the Runway, some people at work – not using the Australian version. So I think I actually think there's real utility. Like if you can rent a dress for 100 bucks that, that would otherwise cost you 1,500 bucks, and you're constantly changing – you're, you're not, and you're not having to waste stuff in the in the wall. I think there's real utility to cu- customers. I think the, prob- the economics you just said completely don't work for anyone. I think the problem with the RTR is it, there's so much. If you think of the value, there's so much value being given to the customer, and they're not keeping enough for themselves. So then I think that's the problem with that business. I'm not sure the issue with Stitch Fix. I think Stitch Fix is actually a really interesting business, which is the stylist business. And we looked at investing in an Australian version of Trunk Club, but I used it. Uh, I think we invested in the end and it's something went out of business and so it went out of business a couple of times but I'm not sure why the, I, I don't know if you have any views but I'm not sure why these businesses can't work. I've got very strong views on these businesses. Please enlighten. RTR. Yeah. Junk. <laughs> so let me explain to you why they're junk. The business is junk not the dresses they sell presumably. No, I don't know. I haven't worn the dresses but I mean I think yeah. they're expensive yeah. but like I tell you why it's junk. I was looking at their business. These are these are not small businesses. RTR yeah. revenue three hundred and fifty million USD. That is not a small business. Yeah. Okay. This is their problem. After you know what their gross margin is. So that is after they've sent it out and done it. You know what their gross margin is. What percentage? What percentage of their gross margin? Twenty percent. Oh, well, it's, well, there you go. You know, you would be a fan of this business. It's thirty five percent, which I would, okay. I wouldn't go near. The problem is this: thirty five percent. 
These are the probably not investment luxury escapes. Well, because it's not luxury escapes. Yeah. Like, you know, this is the pro- I thought the problem with this business was going to be that. Um, well, we can start off with a high level problem with both of these businesses. Their revenue is going backwards, and they're losing subscribers. And yep. in the case of Stitch Fix, their revenue per customer is also going backwards, and that might also be the case for Rent the Runway. Yep. So I don't know how you get a graph that goes up and to the right. It's challenging. I'm sure yeah. they would be able to figure something out. But all of the metrics that you're interested in are going you yep. know, down and to the right. Um, the problem is, I thought it was going to be a marketing issue, marketing acquisition cost. Yeah. Actually, their marketing is only 10% of their oh. revenue. So that is pretty great. This is RTR I'm talking yeah. about. These are their problems. Like the cost of sending out the stuff is mm. 30% of their revenue. Yeah. 30%. Does that include dry cleaning when it comes back as well? This is shipping costs. doesn't even include the dry cleaning. Shipping costs. Yeah. Now, I'll accept shipping costs for direct-to-consumer of 10%. Okay, yeah. that's fine. I mean, I don't like it. But like the cost of getting it there and warehousing it, 10%. I'll take yeah. that, okay? That sounds high because it, it – 30%. Oh, no, it's actually – 30%. You, yeah, because you're only making – because if you pay $240 – a month US, yep. I think you get 10 dresses maybe. Uh, so it's about to call it 25. Is that right? I know that, oh, they, I know that they say that – I know there's three levels of subscription and the business says they need about three turns of the product to make back the cost. It looks like – I think this is a US um, site. So it looks like you pay 144 US a month. This is the middle plan. There's yep. a higher plan and a lower plan. You get two shipments of five. So that's how they sort of reduce it a bit. So you're getting two shipments for – Effectively seventy five bucks. So you're paying seventy five bucks a shipment, basically. So that's yeah. that's the problem. So probably say it costs. Oh, them. you think that's the problem? I've got problems for you. That's one problem. Yeah, well, that's, that's that's one get, problem. It's going to cost them fifteen bucks to send a big fancy dress, and they're only getting seventy five buck payments. That's 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 yeah. inherently a big issue. So what? what, what so they they need according to. Uh, the numbers that I saw, they need about three turns of the of each product to make back the cost of it. Yeah. And after that, the prof- they're profitable. I mean, that's a problem at all. Even they if- buy a dress and have to yeah. rent it three times. So yeah. even if they didn't have the risk of like effectively, these are not durable goods, right, because they go out of fashion. So even if they didn't have that risk and even if they didn't have the problem of people working from home and not the office, which has been terrible for them. Has it? Yeah, shocking. Well, they listed mid-work from home, so they should be. I'm telling then. you that one of the things they both talk about is that work from home has been bad for okay. them in terms of the, the stuff that – the yep. demand for their product. Okay. So there's one of their problems. Here's another thing you'll love. Their general and administrative costs, that's 35% of their revenue. Mm. Yeah. So, so that's no way to build a business, okay? Yep. That's no way to build a business. And so already you've got headaches there. Yeah. Then I can talk to you like about their inventory problems. So RTR with 350 mil of rev, they have a $100 million of inventory. One hundred million dollars. Yeah, and so not a, that's, that's. I mean, that's bad enough because that shoots up your cash, right? There's a hundred yeah. million dollars of cash gone, but even worse, in the last period, they because they sell stuff that they don't need anymore. Yep. They had minus fifty million dollars of cash flow with inventory, so they bought 50, seventy-five mil of inventory yeah. and they sold twenty-five yeah. mil of inventory. So it's just chewing their cash, chewing their cash. The sale prices that that the, the inevitable. Sale just reduces the the buy. Like they, they make the money from the yeah, churn. but that's still burning through cash. This, like these are so they got a hundred mil in the bank. So I thought a forty five million dollar business market cap. Yeah, a hundred mil of cash in the bank. Yeah, a hundred mil of inventory. Yeah, this maybe you buy this for parts, right? Yeah. That looks interesting. Do you know the real problem with RTR on their balance sheet? Some debt there. Three hundred million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't see how this business is ever going to do anything other than get go, get bought. Yeah. Or go broke in a mercy killing because, yeah. like, they they have a hundred mil that they're just 
burning through. They've got 300 mil debt that I can't see how they're ever going to pay back. And the core economics of this business are terrible. The other issue is like there's, there's also costs in. So you've got the shipping costs and you've got the people break stuff and oh, they've right. got to fix it and they've got to dry clean it. So you've got all these other issues that, that exist with, with the inventory that. So well, you don't even get three turns out of the dress because exactly. it gets ruined. So I think the issue is like it's an amazing customer experience. If you're a customer, let's. Uh, of course, it's amazing customer experience. They're selling stuff to you for less than it costs the them point. to make. This is like this is like that's a great way for 1. revenue 0. growth. This is web one point oh, but well, they're not even growing. No, but that's the amazing. Bizarre. They're selling. Yeah. They're selling a dollar for for like not twenty cents, yeah. and they're still shrinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, it's a truly like, but as a customer, so you're getting. Let's say you, I don't know what, what people can spend, but you can easily spend $10,000 on dresses. Really. If you're buying this Diane von Furstenberg stuff, you can yeah. easily knock up 10 grand. Well, I'm not familiar you can with get, the cost of dresses. You can get this stuff for like, for two grand a year, you can get 10, so you're up for 20% of the cost, you can get 10 grand of, of value right, a year. It's unbelievable as a customer. All you're giving me is the sales pitch for the product. And what I'm telling you is- I'm not saying the, it's good business, I'm saying no, it's great for say, a customer. Yeah, okay. So, so I, I can't comment on whether I think it's a good sales pitch because I'm not the target customer. I, I would never use it, okay? But- this, the economics of this business don't work. Clearly, I don't. I think the most impressive, the biggest opportunity, we'll talk about Stitch Fix for two minutes as well. The biggest opportunity these businesses have is to leverage these enormous customer bases and try and sell something Surprise. that makes some money. Yeah. Stitch Fix is an even bigger business. Their revenue was $1.5 billion wow. yeah. after going backwards 20%. Yeah. I mean, they've got the trifecta as well of diminishing revenue, diminishing yeah. customers, and diminishing revenue per customer, yeah. not the recipe for a winning business. <laughs> but they've got $250 mil in the bank. And yeah. they've also got 100 mil of inventory, which is a much lower number for their yeah. revenue. I can't work out why they've got all this inventory. It must like, just be like they get it in, they ship it out. Don't they get it out? Wouldn't you think that business would get inventory on consignment from these companies? I think that if you – the one thing that should make these businesses okay, it clearly hasn't – And been. they have no debt stitch fix. That's what's the good news about well, that. Well, something that should make certainly stitch fix a good business, and even RTR to an extent, is they should be buying this stuff at a really good discount of – like I could, the margin yeah. closed like 50, 60, 70%. If you're getting it for 50, 60% off, that's actually a pretty good But the margin business. on these these top end brands might not be that. I would have thought it's more. LVMH has higher margins than your average um, that's luggage true. seller. That's true. I mean, by the way, the, the gross margins of Stitch Fix, if I told you the gross margins of RTR are 35%, yeah. what do you think the gross margins of Stitch Fix are? 40? 35%. Okay. They're basically the same. Yeah. <laughs> They're not the same business, yeah. but they've got the same horrible gross margin. I think when I look at a business like Stitch Fix, so I think RTR, for the life of me, I can't work out how to make money out of that yeah. business. But Stitch Fix, I think to myself, if I was a fashion brand, I would run Stitch Fix internally and have a customer base of people that got access to stuff before it came out to the market yeah. and charge $1 a year to be a member or $10 a year. Some to or maybe if it was a better brand, you could charge $500 or who knows. Yeah. That I think this business works inside a brand, mm. but yeah, I'm not sure right. it works as a standalone I'm not, business. I'm actually not sure it works inside a brand either. But I think Stitch Fix, I use the Trunk Club thing. I think there was merit there. Uh, I think Stitch Fix actually makes sense as a business, especially when you get the big wholesale retail spread in fashion. I think the issues that I've seen all these sort of rent, these sort of trunk club style businesses do is, I, and I'm a discount guy. I think it's got to be selling clothing at a discount. So you don't have your big stores. You don't have as much inventory. Well, you bought one of those businesses. Which one? Oz, 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 Brand, Brands exclusive. Brands exclusive. You tried that. Had that yeah, go business, for now you. we were flash sales. Different business. Totally different. But that business. was cheap. Cheap branded clothing. Was, but we couldn't get the inventory. That was oh, not the issue. Like these guys can get the inventory. So it's not as if we didn't have demand. Well, maybe they only get inventory because they pay for it. They probably do. I mean, that's why they your, – your idea, which is get cheaper inventory. Like No, I'm, I'm all my point is maybe take less margin and be a bit of a – not off price, but be have give some value back to the customer. I think 
RTR and Stitch Fix have reverse problems. RTR gives too much value to the customer. I think Stitch Fix probably doesn't give quite enough. I see. So I think it's different. Sort you of know they're trying, to, they're trying to fire their 2,000 stylists and replace them with AI. AI. Surely when you read that for you, when you read that in the report, you're like, no, nah, they're dead. Yeah. Well, you know what? You know, AI in the, in the report. Good whenever somebody mentioned yeah, AI. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, my, your mate's an Alassian. I, I, I know you're going to wind me up, but I just want to finish by waving a red rag in front of a bull, okay? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> when you see how hard it is for Stitch Fix to, Stitch Fix to make money at 1.5 bill, yeah. And you see how hard it is for RTR to make money, basically impossible. Yeah. At three hundred and fifty mil of USD of revenue, does what do you think about Setar after that? Doesn't that just in, in, even more exacerbate your well, views about? Setar's got a bigger problem than just the model makes no sense at all. At least these guys sort of make sense. Setar makes no sense yet somehow seems to make money. But you're, if these guys can't get cheap inventory yeah. to sell and they're yeah. this size, doesn't that just exacerbate your views? I'm just trying to roll you well, up. But doesn't that just exacerbate your views about how the hell does Setar get oh, well, such you know cheap inventory? The whole thing doesn't make any sense, and, and this. Just confirms exactly that. I have a journal every week, not every week, but twice a month. Yeah, call me and say, "Would you make any comments about Setar?" And I say, "We can talk, but I've got nothing to." No one calls me no, about I, no idea. I, I, I'm going to pass on your pass on to me. I did to the last guy. He'll, he'll be calling. <laughs> he you. never called me. Yeah. So. My suggestion is because just because my I presume that you're not that keen on being a defendant in court, you should possibly make oh, your comments can, off the record. I can live with that. But anyway, well, uh, on that note, we'll jump to another super quick break and be back with our very special guest, Gavin Appel. Adi, I imagine you're a big-time property investor. I'm the opposite to a big-time property investor. I know how to grow businesses. I'm, I'm good with startups. I'm good with growth businesses. I can buy listed equities. I can invest in funds. But um, I'm definitely not very sophisticated when it comes to property investment, I regret to inform you. I hear you. There's only so many things you can be expert in, and most people who invest in property are really flying blind. That's where performance property comes into it. They're a high-end property advisory firm who work with some of Australia's smartest investors. Performance Property will help you strategically grow your portfolio, utilize data sets, and make sure you're not overpaying. They even conduct detailed due diligence and even help with existing assets. They essentially make buying property as easy as buying a BHP share. If you've got more than $500,000 in equity to invest and are looking to build a multi-million dollar portfolio, give Performance Property a call on 03-8539-0300 or visit their website at performanceproperty.com.au. We are very happy to have, backed by popular demand, our first ever repeat guests, Gavin Appel. This is... Uh, it was actually backed by... As much absolutely. as I regret to say, it actually was backed by popular demand. People I, were knocking down the door demanding Gav come well, back. my assumption so. was that you went around to a lot of people after you were on the show and said, <laughs> you should tell them that I should go back on this show because a lot of people said to me, you should have Gav back. I must say, just full disclosure, it was all inbound. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, Gav's a podcast veteran. How long have you guys been doing your podcast for? Uh, the vlog with Toby Scott with Tobes, and yeah. Cubes. Yeah, we've been doing it for about 18 months now. Yeah, okay, so you're a regular monthly. More expert than us. So shout out to – which is a really great, really great podcast. Don't call it a podcast. It's a, it's a vlog. It's a vlog, sorry. What do you call it? A vlog. 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 Uh, so that, well, actually we're videoing today, so that's why we got Gavin in, just to raise the calibre of, yeah, of, of the yeah. – <laughs> <laughs> We've got a couple of great topics for, to discuss with, with the expert. So the first one is the recent change to sophisticated investor plan. So the Labor government – which is rapidly moving from centrist to quite far left in some ways, uh, recently announced that it will change the threshold to be a sophisticated investor from 2.5 million in, in net assets, including house, to 4.5. It's explore, I, should, I want to correct you and say 
they're doing an inquiry. Inquiry. And there was an underpaid ASIC person spending two minutes doing a net present value calculation (laughs) of what the numbers would look like now if they were indexed to inflation from 2002. Uh, And Stephen Jones, who's assistant treasurer, claimed that a trader who owns a house in Rockdale shouldn't be exposed to high-risk advice because the government hasn't fixed the threshold. So, Gav, maybe do you want to give a quick background on on what the sophisticated investor test is, how it impacts on everything from VC to PE to to other investments, and then we'll talk about the changes or the proposed changes. In order to become a sophisticated investor, you need your accountant to state in a letter that says that you have net assets of over $2.5 million dollars or you've earned an income of $250,000 or more over the prior two financial years. If you get a letter that has those two bullet points and a signature from your accountant, you are deemed a sophisticated investor. And the two and a half mil, that's with your house, right? With your house as yeah. well. And I think that's where you came from before in terms of inflation and the, the price of houses have gone up. So suddenly, yep. the, the, I think it's from about 2% back in 2002 yep. to now about 16 or 17%. And they obviously think that that's yep. too much. Yeah. Yeah, well, we don't know what they think because Ed Husick, which had, who had a lot of comments to make about Gaza, doesn't yeah. have any comments to make about this so far whatsoever. So yeah. he's the industry minister and has been the lover of tech historically. And so, what's he? What what should we saying is like? What's what? So what does it mean? Like, yeah, so what can what can you do if you're a sophisticated you investor? You have one of these shiny certificates. It means yep. that you can invest in riskier asset classes, and also the people who are selling you shares in those assets don't need to have the the relevant prospectus or product disclosure statements. Yep. So if you look at it in the tech industry, that means that people who have a sophisticated who are sophisticated investors are able to invest in early stage tech. Yep. They're able to invest in venture capital when they go through the onboarding process of being a limited partner in one of the venture capital firms. So it, it if this barrier does get increased, it's going to significantly reduce the pool of investors that will be able to fund early stage investors, which for our industry is a disaster. So when you think about a startup, most startups doing seed or pre-seed rounds, so before they've got a product or very early in the product, mostly they're not getting venture capital money. It's rare that the rare few do. That would be the the million dollars that the startup gets at that stage that's not getting VC money. That's 100% sophisticated investors, presumably. Absolutely. You know, there's that old saying, friends, family and fools. These are the people who are writing $5,000, $20,000, $50,000 checks to support future innovation when it's so high on the risk you know, profile that VCs and others may not want to invest yet and they want to maybe want to see some proof points, it's the family and friends that are the ones that are writing those checks. It's a really cha- challenged topic because on one hand, the changes do make sense. 2.5 million is is a lot different to what it was 15 years ago. Like if you look at house prices- 22 years ago. Yeah, so house prices are probably 5X in that time or 4X in that time or whatever it is. So I understand the notion that you don't want someone who owns a $2.6 million house putting $1.5 million in some dodgy investment scheme. I'm not talking about startups here specifically. And you lose the one and a half and there's a real problem. So there's some there's actually some rationale behind the change. I think where the problem is, is- it, startups need more money, not less. It's already an industry like no one can raise at the moment. You've got VCs pulling back. You've got family and friends probably not, not uh, having the – probably one of the few outlets to actually still get money now. So I think there's a couple of things that probably these – and maybe in the, in, the, in the actual changes they fix it, but simply increasing the limit sounds dumb. But I think what you potentially do is say you can't invest more than $100,000 per investment or they, they probably limit the amount so you're not going to lose the million bucks. Or you can say it doesn't apply to – 
uh, well, actually, the early stage thing probably creates another risk, but you can certainly cap the amount per investment and that would reduce the risk and still allow a lot of money to go into early stage. Yeah. That's the crowdfunding. Crowdfunding has a some kind of class ruling or something yeah. which says you can invest up to, I don't know, right. like 10K or something, yeah. I think it is, without being a sophisticated investor. Yeah, we certainly don't want to limit. That's been a disaster, by the way, I think, crowdfunding returns. Oh, really? Well, the returns haven't been good. Okay. I'll get hate mail for that, but I stand by it. <laughs> I think we, we don't want this any change or proposed change to limit the amount of capital going into early stage innovation. It's the lifeblood of innovation. It's, it's fueling. Like if you look even back at Canva and other companies, some of their yep. earliest investors were you know, sophisticated investors. And, and that's really you know, fueling the innovation, which has downstream effects on the Australian economy and future job creation, all those other things. So yep. if we were to suffocate the number of angel investors that are able to invest in these early stage companies, that could be a, a real uh, handbrake on the startup ecosystem. So let me just say some things disagreeing with a lot of the stuff that both of you have just said. <laughs> we can first call out Gavin as being totally self-interested in all of his remarks, but that's fine. He's the, that's what you said last time. Yeah, well, so, uh, there's nothing – I always say there's no interest if there's no self-interest. So, um, so let me tell you some things I think about this. The first is that we should be blunt that no one in politics on either side of politics cares one iota about anybody in the technology space. In fact, they basically are disdainful towards them yeah. and hate them and there is nothing that people inside any of the VCs or even in – what's the thing that Robin Denholm yeah, shares? Tech Council you know, of Australia. Oh, like, I mean, I don't know if they've even put out a comment yet about this, but who cares? Like – they're hated by both parties for many reasons. They're seen as disconnected from the economy and disconnected from society and they've funded the Teals, which makes them certainly hated by the Liberal yeah. Party. Yeah. So I think the first thing to say is nobody cares what they've got to say and they sound whiny to politicians. And I'm not saying that I agree with that view. I'm just telling you that I speak to enough politicians on both in both major parties. That's the universal view of the tech, the tech industry. Yeah. I tell you what my in issue is with all of this. Why are we stop? What are we trying to achieve here? Like, in let me say, in life, in finance, we have this view, which is that the more information and third party auditing you have about an investment, the safer that investment tends to be. And I, I agree with that. And it's why we let people invest whatever they want on the ASX because notionally like they're reporting frequently and they're being audited by an independent auditor. And so you can invest in shitty companies on the ASX and you can put as much money as you want into speculative mining businesses or tech businesses and you don't need to be a sophisticated investor and that's because of information flow. That's the perception. And on the flip side, people say, well, but you can invest in blockchain as much as you want, Bitcoin as much as you want, and you can invest in the racetrack as much as you want. And that's because the view of politicians and regulators, rightly or wrongly, is that the people that put money into those endeavours perceive the very high risk nature of those endeavours and are not realistically expecting returns from those investments. And I know people in Bitcoin say, well, they shouldn't see it like that, but actually they should. For, like if you're self-interested on Bitcoin, you should for the time being be happy that that's the way that regulators and government sees it because you don't have to be a sophisticated investor. And my bigger issue is this. Why – what's the rationale for stopping people – investing money that they've legitimately earned in investments. This is consenting adults and the biggest risk in investment in the investment world is fraud. That's the biggest risk and that's illegal. And so we're not going to just bring in a sophisticated investor test to stop people investing in fraudulent investments because that's already illegal and there should be regulators and people go to jail and like that's already taken care of. 
And so really, my biggest issue with all of this is as follows. The richest people love investing in things that require you to be a sophisticated investor because on the whole, you get access to investments where there's a mismatch in the risk return pricing and you can make much better returns. And that is what they get to invest in. And we can be blunt, that is what we get to invest in. And then you go and you say to people, well, you're not rich enough to get access to these great investments because we think you're, you're probably a bit dumb <laughs> and like you're going to lose your money. You so don't, we're you don't just, understand the risk. I think that's the, the rationale. You don't understand the risk. Okay. And so, well, it's the same as a bit dumb. You're a bit dumb. It's a bit dumb. You're a bit dumb. You're too poor and a bit dumb. And so we're not going to give you access to that. And so what happens is that you wipe out poorer people, by definition, from investing in things that richer people get to access. You wipe out the middle class, really, because if if you're poor, you don't have money to invest in. Well, I'm not saying poor. I agree. If you're you're saying, where am I going to get my next sandwich from, you're not going to invest in a startup. But there's this huge, you're right, middle band. And so what you're effectively doing by doing that is exacerbating wealth disparity in society potentially by not giving people with less money access to a class of asset that people with more money love because it gives better returns on the whole. And I've got massive issues with that. And like if you consider this, imagine – I'm going to pick random things, but imagine a 28-year-old that's got some few thousands of dollars they've earned – and no real financial commitments, and this is the age to be taking some financial risk, and they, one of their friends is doing a startup. they know if that friend is a moron or is smart. If they're smart, they want to give them money. Why should they not be able to give that money to their friend? And I agree, if you want to cap it if at 10K or 50K, you don't want people losing all of their money. But this paternalistic, condescending approach to telling consenting adults how they can invest their money, I'm just totally opposed to the whole thing. Do you think there should should be no sophisticated limit at all, let alone the 2.5? I think they should be clearer on understanding what risk they're trying to mitigate here and work harder to find better ways to mitigate the risk. It feels like you're saying there shouldn't be any sophisticated limit at all. I don't like the whole idea of saying you need to be this risk to access this class of investment. I would much rather say – I'll give you some examples of things. I think just just on that, I think that the challenge – potentially with having wiping it out and having nothing is that then the sharks will come along and they will create these sophisticated product offering to take advantage of people who you know may not be as smart who can't uh, afford to lose it. i think who can't afford to lose it yeah, that's exactly. a better argument kind of but what do you well by shark you mean they're going to do things that are legal there's or always illegal cowboys legal or illegal maybe a bit of gray area there like there's always people looking to take advantage of other people in every industry that we're in so then what you're saying is that maybe we should standardize some of the information that we provide to people so we don't want to add red tape but standardizing some information is fine and you know you could do all sorts of things like at the moment an accountant needs to sign off that you are um, sophisticated. sophisticated well maybe the accountant needs to sign off on that investment presumably the accountant's got insurance so that's great you want to just have a place to go if you go if you get cheated and you need to get your money back and maybe you do have dollar value caps you can't invest more than x i, I don't have the solution at this table but what i understand is that this particular idea should we have 250 and two and a half mil or 450 and four and a half mil what problem is that solving? Like, I think we have to go back to basics and say what we want is people to avoid – we want to avoid people getting taken advantage of and we want to avoid people losing more than they can afford to lose. And so let's put some measures in place that 
protect us from that. But I don't like the idea of saying you're too poor to invest in an asset class that rich people think has the best returns as a class. Well, clearly, it it probably does. We talk about this a bit more in a second, but it probably does because there is that supply-demand imbalance, especially if you're looking at like a Series A, Series B, where you've got these businesses who can actually – sometimes they're profitable, almost profitable, and they just can't raise money because it just isn't – Australia doesn't – and probably a reason why – it's even worse. We don't have look where most US VC money comes from. It's largely, not largely, but a big chunk of it's US uh, college endowments. So you got Harvard mm. with yeah. like 100 billion or something like that, or, or approaching it. You got Yale with similar, and they put a lot into into VC, and they obviously put a chunk into PE as well. But we don't have that at all. So we just don't have that ecosystem. I think if I look at my f- you know first hand experience when we scaled Hitwise, we sold Hitwise, and I have a look at the amount of people who would not hit the thresholds yeah. that exist today yeah. that have then recycled that capital back into the tech ecosystem. All of those layers that we say, like the exit Lassians, all these types of people who are going back and fueling the next generation of employees, many of them would not hit this proposed new threshold. Yeah, so if you're going to have – let's say we agree that there needs to be some regulation in the financial services sector. This is part of the financial services sector. It needs regulation. I don't want to regulate out people from investing. Mm. I would rather regulate to make it a safer investment yeah. and people to be better educated and you know avoid nuclear bombs from exploding – but frankly, like, this is exactly the kind of investment that we should be enabling people to do. I mean, like, in your experience, um, oh, but let me ask you this question. You may, may or may not know the answer, but you know these ESV CLPs, so these highly tax-effective... So what, what, what does that stand for? Early Stage Venture Capital Limited Partnership. It's the structure that most oh, no, VCs is like, I'm well, wondering whether yeah. I did know the... Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know the acronym, but what I know is that when you're on onto six letters for your acronym, that's a failed brainstorming session. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous, right? So these ESV CLPs, yep. can you invest, can you give money? It's about a fund with a fund manager and a mandate. Can you give money to them without being a sophisticated investor or you have to be a sophisticated investor? Yeah, you have to be a sophisticated yeah. investor. You have to, as part of the know your customer and the onboarding process, you need to provide a letter of certificate right. from your accountant. So, so it comes from all angles. Well, I think that's dumb, okay? Like basically these ESV CLPs, see how bad it is. That's harder to say than rent the runway for you. <laughs> so, <laughs> tongue twister. New, yeah. And new so, age tongue twister. Like these things are heavily regulated. Like you've got to jump through hoops and to set one up. And the beauty of them is once you, as an investor, you get capital gains tax-free for 10 years oh, and you get a point. tax rebate yeah. You put it in, it's yeah. just insane. Let's yeah. take the rich get richer if, they, oh, if, if you bet on the exactly. right deals, the, the rich get richer. Well, even with the wrong deals, you get the tax yeah. deduction up front. I think when I look at this sophisticated, this potential change that they're talking about, uh, the challenge that I see is you know, we're like th- uh, you know, 11 to 12 years since 2012 when kind of like the startup ecosystem. I thought it was 2000. Oh, yeah, go, sorry. Yeah. Re, re kind of kicked off yes. again, yeah, when yeah. Blackbird Square Peg others yeah, started, exactly. yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's been about 11 years. There's a huge kind of momentum with growth. You know, founders are starting, there's support networks, you know, there's all these different things. Startmate and Airtree, as yeah. two examples, have created the Airtree Explorer yeah. and the Startmate First Believers to generate hundreds and hundreds of angel investors. So everyone in the industry is doing what they want to do to fuel future innovation for Australia. And then it just feels like this massive headwind is just, you know, constantly being smacked around. But we can be honest, okay? Any VC 
that says that get, gets up in arms about this and waves their hands. No, it's all self-interest. Now they may actually believe the ideology behind it as well, but it'll be impossible to discern the difference because it's completely self-interested. And so I respect that. That's their industry. Well, some VCs don't like if you're looking at Blackbird and Square, they, they just have insta money, so they don't care. Yeah, like it's actually, hey, actually the most people, the, the people no, who are most vocal about this are the angel investors and the people driving the syndicates. But Blackbird so people, cares in their start mate of, business. Of course, of course, but a lot of the um, the you know the commentary in the market now. Now is being driven by a lot of angel investors who firsthand have been the ones driving that early sure. stage fa- family and friends rounds and uh, and are hitting. But, but VCs are, are self interested because um, they want like when they get to the smorgasbord table, yeah. they want more dishes on the table. And if you wipe out the angel stuff, then there's fewer dishes on the table for them to go yeah, and then invest in. So or they, listen, could, they could do earlier stage, but yeah, the whole yeah. industry self interested. That's totally yeah. fine. Like. Industry should be self-interested. Yeah. That is called capitalism. Yeah. The bigger issue is that um, you look at something like the ESV CLP and you talked about the tax benefits and we basically say we're going to get this whole chunk of the population that's poorer and we're going to exclude them from tax benefits, yeah. which means they're paying for the tax benefit 100%. of the richer people because there's no free tax benefit. Someone's paying, so it's the people that are not participating. It's called negative gearing. That sort of well, that's the thing. same thing, right? Someone's always paying for somebody else's tax benefit. Principal, cap, principal ca- um, residence, ca- tax-free capital gains. Everything. So absolute gift to the rich. Someone's, oh, that's right. So everyone, someone's always paying. It's just basically the rich Stealing from the poor. Let's be, let's be. And so, well, because the, the rich is not doing it. The thing is this. Like, the rich stealing from the poor, you might say, well, let's get angry. It's the, the old rich. stealing it's from not, the young. It's not it's their fault. The, it's the government that is doing this. 100%. And so what I think is that something like an ESV CLP, it's heavily regulated. Heavily regulated. You know who the managers are. They have to jump through hoops. It's You can probably be a shyster and do an ESV CLP, but it's not easy. And so, it costs a lot as well, like north of 80000 to 100000 to, to set establish it, up. it yeah. And so that's a good example of a place that you could start by saying anybody can invest – 30 or 50K or whatever it is in an ESV CLP, they may not like it. It's a bit of an overhead to manage this. You'd have to solve that problem. But I just have fundamental issues with trying to solve a problem with a blunt instrument that disadvantages a significant portion of the population. And then we get caught in these conversations about how should we change a dumb mechanism? Is it dumber or less dumb or the same Mm -hmm. dumb? Like it's not going to be less dumb. (sighs) It's going to be the same dumb or dumber. That doesn't seem like the right conversation to be having. We've got fundamentally, we've got pol- and uh, Labor hasn't put this through yet by any stretch. But you've got ASIC and like and Labor politicians who have no idea what they're talking about. Well, here. no, ASIC has just done what they had, what was put as a thought bubble into the media, which yeah. is what would it look like with inflation factored in? Uh, ASIC's done nothing wrong here, yeah. and and. The Labor government has gone and floated this thought bubble, which I thought was ridiculous. They don't go and float this thought bubble yeah. and have nothing around it. Anyway, I don't, don't blame ASIC for this. It's not their yeah. fault. I'm at, I'll just move on to our next story. Uh, that's the end of that story. That's, that's very that's abrupt. That's story. Well, I have a last comment the, to make about we're, we're this. The what do you here. think they should do? I agree with you. You agree with me? Yeah. All right. Well, I do think there should be a, probably a, a, an upper limit on, on how much fiscal investors should be investing per investment. I think there's, a, there's probably a bit of work they can do around that. But uh, the rest of it – because I do – you shouldn't be able to lose your life savings. Yeah, but listen, you can go to Crown Casino and lose your life savings I think most. So. I think most – well, I know, but there's no expectation of a return from Crown Casino. Oh, but people who are doing it probably expect a return. Oh, uh, well, you mate, don't go, I don't you know. No one goes and tends to lose money. I would say you should invest in the 
casino, but Star hasn't been a good investment. So maybe don't invest <laughs> in the we're, casino we're either. Star's literally on live on Luxury Escapes now, so we're never going to talk ill of the great Star Hotel. No, uh, the hotel is great. Do you have the Darling there as well or just the Star? This is just Star today. Right. We have to Get the Darling before. as well. I'll book the Star's Darling. Great. It's a great property though. I'm not, I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying they haven't had a great investment track record in the last <laughs> – 12 months. Look, I wanted to ask one more thing before you finish that, but you're putting me under so much pressure with Sorry. this. We do do you agree? Our listeners, Nick, other stuff to do. No, they're fine. They're <laughs> happy to listen. They got 30% a month. It's good. good okay? <laughs> so let me just ask this question. Just give me a yes or no answer. This is a very hard question for you to answer, Gavin. You can, it's an easy question for you to answer. <laughs> if you take all of the angel investors and all of the angel investments that have been made in Australia in the last 10 years, I'm going to just pick – you can pick any period mm-hmm. – you think in total they're down, they're the same, or they're up? What's your gut feel? Like, is it, would you say to someone, angel investing, let's say you don't make one angel investment, make 10, like all of those things, right? Yeah. Diversification, yeah. blah, blah, blah. You think angel investing has been a good investment in the last 10 years or not on the whole for Australians? I think that if you excluded the one anomaly, Canva, Canva yep. would probably be down. What do you think? I was going to say the exact same thing. So the bigger problem with this test is not the 2 mil, 5 mil, 10 mil, 50 mil. It's like this is a risky investment class. Absolutely. And we should let anyone who wants to invest in it invest in it, but we should put guardrails around it so that you can't lose your pants. I think it's a a very risky investment class, as you said, asset class, as you said. But I also think that a lot of people, call them as sophisticated or not, don't understand the, the length to maturity. Yeah. Right, and we'll talk about this probably next. Yeah. But the length to maturity in terms of back in the day, startups were yeah. seven to nine years in terms of founding to exit, and now you're talking about more ten to thirteen, well, even years. less potentially. Like you had some even less were, quick flips. And, in the and old like. days, you had Microsoft and Apple were three to four years. To yeah. In the old old days, yeah. uh, even even Facebook was what six years. Well, we're yeah. talking about startups because we've got Gavin here. But the thing is this: like it's sophisticated investment. It's not just startups. You can't invest in mezzanine property deals yeah. without being a sophisticated. Correct. What are they paying? Seventeen or 18% or something. Yep. And so there's just this whole world of investments that give you an advantage if you pick the right ones on a risk return curve, yep. excluded from all of them. Yeah. Let's move on. Now so I'll let you move on. We'll move on. All so right. we saw a really interesting story last week in Street Talk. And I thought it was unusual because it's not often this stuff falls off the back of a truck, but they did a, a fair bit of work on on SquarePeg. What gave you? I think you were the first operating partner there. General partner, yeah. First general partner there, I should say. Don't undersell him. Uh, yeah. Which obviously uh, Paul Bassett founded it and you, you jumped on board really quickly. It came, I think, straight from – almost straight from Hitwise. From Xperia and the company that yeah, acquired from us. Yep, yep. And if you look at how they've gone I – think, so I think Street Talks spoke to some people from Fund Zero, their, their first fund – uh, which which has actually done really well. I think six point seven times return so far. That obviously had Canva in it. So Canva was literally the the tide that rose every boat in the world. So it's hard to take too much sort of focus on that. But then they were pretty critical after that. And I thought in a way unfairly. So they talk about uh, Fund One, uh, and they were saying how Fund One hasn't gone too well, but it's got rocked in it, which has been one of the great Australian investment stories. Bruce Buchanan, our, our, our great mate, has done an unbelievable job. That could be a $5 billion exit potentially when they eventually sell it. Has Air Wallet, which is I think is an $8 billion business now. So two of the, probably two of the top four or five ever Australians that are startups uh, are in there. So they've actually done really well. Fund three, which is 2020, hasn't done as well. This is obviously timing. hasn't been great. No one's done well who invested in 2020. They're a negative 10 so far, but it's, you really can't nice. really judge that. That's like calling election at six o'clock on, in, in the night. Uh, so, Gav, you, you obviously know SquarePeg pretty well and you know the ecosystem fairly well. How 
really, is it unusual to see this kind of info coming off the back of a truck? And and how sort of do you think the Australian VC in ecosystem has performed, especially in light of the, what we just talked about? And in light of the fact that you want to continue getting work from them. <laughs> <laughs> So look, it's um, it, it's very rare to see such in-depth information being publicly disclosed. disclosed I mean, it was leaked by an investor in that fund. It was. It, w- it would have had to have been. Yeah. So, so most of the VCs, I would say, or at least the ones that you know, I'm an investor in or or I'm close with, are quite transparent with their limited partners. So the people who give them money, they're quite transparent in terms of their fund dynamics. You know, the the results, progress to results, and the company. What a great name, by the way, is limited partner. Whoever came up with that, yeah. like you want to get money out of someone, how can you get money out of them? If I call you an investor or this, a shareholder, I'm going to call you a partner. <laughs> That's going to make you feel special. But you're limited. In what way am I limited? You can't do anything. You can't touch. <laughs> <laughs> You've got no control whatsoever. In what way am I a partner? The money way. <laughs> so, so, so I think that um, it is rare, but I think um, these, uh, these newspapers are always looking for scoops. So, so what I was saying was a lot of these VC funds are quite transparent with their limited partners, which I think is great. There's a lot of trust. But when something like this happens, if it was an investor mm. that leaked it to the newspaper, that's disappointing because, you know, the ecosystem in order for transparency to come, yeah. there's a two, it's a two-way street. So, yeah. so we'll say that for, for the first off. The second thing is is that I think the 2020 funds, the whole vintages for all the VCs, I mean, we're talking about we're three years into this. Yeah. So whether it's plus or minus 10 or 20%, it's too early. Let's just put that to the side. Yeah. Um, but three in, tough years. Like it's been a couple been, of tough years. It's been tough years for founders. It's been yeah. tough yeah. years for investors. Yeah, um, and then and then if we have a look at um, the the. 2012 vintages and 2014 vintages, they're ones that you can start to analyse and have a look to have we picked the winners, haven't we? I think that that article was particularly harsh on Squarepeg and I don't think that it was necessarily fair because I I agree with you that Rocked and Airwallix and others have been incredible investments. They just haven't become- Talent One's in there as well. Talent One and remember Venn's been an exit and various other companies, Property Guru and others have been fantastic. Was this in Straight Talk or in Rear Window? Sarah's name was at the top of it, and Sarah obviously, Sarah Thompson obviously right. Street Talk. Uh, so I think it, I'm not sure if it appeared on that page, but right. it was those guys. It was, it was Street Talk, yeah. And a couple, and last month actually in Rear Window, there was an article about Blackbird and their investments or lack thereof right. in um, female founders and yeah. non-binary founders. So, so yeah. that's more like Rear Window is the more where the brutality resides, whereas Street Talk is generally a bit gentler. Well, less so given Joe's not around, but I thought that the Blackbird article was especially harsh because Blackbird is a firm that is very female-friendly, obviously with Startmate. That, so I think that was a, completely uncalled for and, and really disappointing actually from, from in there. When Adam's defending venture f- funds, you know that they've gone too far. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So so I think um, – was it harsh? I think that – I think it's tough for – for investors out there right now, I think the biggest issue facing the VCs is returning capital to their limited partners. And the past two to three years has been really challenging for them to make, I'm sure sitting around the partner table to make those decisions. Should we sell part in a secondary sale? Should we flip the whole business? Should we merge it with someone else? And we've seen all the choppy waters over the past couple of years of mergers and acquisitions undisclosed. You know, Rocked acquired a company a couple of days ago, undisclosed. I'm sure we'll see a lot more of undisclosed mergers and acquisitions. Because undisclosed means I'm too embarrassed to tell you the number. Like seller, basically. Correct, exactly. I would assume that it's more like an aqua hire where the founders have done okay, but investors may not have done incredible. Well, the founders probably got very little, but they got a job and- yeah. Like the brand stays on. It looks like they can walk out head held, head held high. Yeah, that's right. What do, what do you when you were at Square to the degree you can answer this question? What was the expectation that was provided to investors about when they would see their cash back? So it was very clear that it was a long. It was illiquid. 
and it was a very long-term time horizon. So, oh, but 100 years is a long time and 10 years is a long time. <laughs> in, the, in the 10 years plus range. So, right. so people would, you know, as an investor, you never want to blindside your limited partners yeah. because yeah. you want them to invest fund after fund. And so transparency around the investment process and, and how that works and also what the expectations are was very transparent with limited partners. And Squarepeg started, remember you guys started, I think it was a fund by fund, it was investment by investment. So you deal raised a fund per the fund. deal, which Correct. is quite... A different way to do I it. I think a lot of a lot of people like Flying Fox are doing that. You know, they yeah. did their cohorts and they're moving towards a fund. I think a lot of people do because they can get up and running a lot quicker by doing yeah. SPV, so special purpose. Well, it's obviously less risky for an investor. So just to explain the difference there between a blind fund and a deal by deal. Well, so a deal by deal means that the money, the capital that you invest into a special purpose vehicle, so call it a unit trust, whatever happens in that unit trust, dollars in, dollars out gets impacted. So if a business if there are 10 deals in 10 special purpose vehicles and one of those deals fail, you'll you'll lose that box, right? Under a fund mechanism, it's more of a portfolio approach. And you can choose to invest in, I want to invest in Air Wallocks and not Canva. If you're doing deal by deal, yeah. under a fund mechanism, fund you, you, you work in a I portfolio. I think the way that I think about the difference between those two is that special purpose vehicles are, as an investor, I trust the deal yeah. and a fund is I trust the fund manager. That's just, the difference. Just a, a disclosure, Luxury Escapes raised money under SPV about 18 months ago. So yep. we, we usually have great friends at Octus who are really good business. So, so just a single fund for us. So, so yep. back to that article, like whether it was SquarePeg or other names listed in that article, I think that there's challenges across the ecosystem. As we said before, if we exclude Canva, which has really yep. funded the entire yep. VC industry and, and angel you know, industry in Australia over the past 12 years, um, I, th I think there'd be similar dynamics. You know, some have Employment Hero, which has been an incredible yep. business. Others have had Safety Culture. These guys have Rocked and Air Wallet. So there's, yep. you know, each, each of them have a couple of winners in there. The challenge is that each vintage, so each fund may not perform as well as each of the other funds. So then as a, as a sophisticated investor, do you invest in all funds? Do you mm. pick funds? It's, again, it's... A, it's, it's so I think um, the challenge is this. If you believe in this so-called VC power law, which basically means returns are going to be skewed to your best two or three performers, the problem is that we had... Adam's most fairly valued company, Atlassian. So that, <laughs> so that you had that, which no VC got in Australia, but that Excel, was an Excel were the only guys who got. Now just for IPO, yeah, US VC, and yeah. so that was one of the power law mega returns, and Canva, and they're essentially the two power law mega returns that did their early raisings, like like, like the start off as angel businesses in Australia. Yeah. Obviously, Atlassian didn't raise, and so the issue is when I speak to people in VC. And I say this, I ask them this question. I say, are we going to see, you think we're going to see another Atlassian or Canva coming out of your, the next fund and the next fund? The general view is unlikely, which I think is fair. Like they're honest about it. I mean, two, two Australian companies in 230 years of Australian history, they've done that. So Yeah, and there are biggest, other big Australian companies. Like, I don't know, if BHP would have been an angel in Australia back in the, that, that would be one of the but, power law businesses, right? It took right? BHP but, a long time to get to where it right, that's, right. Yeah, that's right, but it's not a tech business, right? So yeah. it is compressed growth timelines with tech. But I think the problem is that we've got these um, level of returns that are unsustainable and they're kind of unfair in terms of what investors are expecting because you've had these two mega businesses that have come out of Australia in the last 10 years the chances of seeing another one of those anywhere outside Silicon Valley on a regular basis is pretty slim. Even there, it's hard. So I just think investors need to expect that we that VC is going to give them a return of 2x 
or 3x their investment over, over the life? Over 10 years. Over, yeah, 10 over years. 7 to 10 years. Well, they, they do talk about 3x plus. Yeah. Like 3x is well, a top quartile. Gr- well, that's a yeah. great outcome. Yeah. 3x yeah. over yeah. that period. I'd be happy with great. 3x for sure. There's not going to be – like, is there going to be a 10x return on a, on a $300 million fund? Very unlikely. Very unlikely. Maybe on a $50 million fund, yeah. but not on a $300 or $500 million fund. I don't think – we've finished the ZERP era, I think, for in our lifetime. So we lived – Zero interest. Zero interest rate. So we yeah. had this, this – period where startups are valued so highly because money was worth zero, essentially, because you had these idiot Fed Reserve and, and idiot RBAs marking down money, making money worth zero because they make interest, interest rates at zero. You don't have to agree or disagree with Adam calling people idiots, just know <laughs> well, lucky, lucky the videos are on. <laughs> they clearly are. But, uh, so that just cha- that's changed the market. So everybody think everything looked better for six or seven years, and it really was, because yeah. they had the RBA who was just inept. So now you've got an RBA... Well, the cost of capital was nil, yeah. and when you factor in net present value, you've got your cost of capital and zero. Yeah, so well, effect close, or even close to zero, exactly. Like, so, and now you've, got a, you've still got an interest rate too low because we're still below inflation, which is, which is problem. Oh, actually, inflation's dropped, but it's still probably lower than it should be. Uh, but it's normalised. So now suddenly all these, these businesses that were being valued at... 20 or 30 times revenue up, how they should be at court four or five times revenue and suddenly it's much harder to make a return. I think where a couple of challenges exist from my perspective. One is to your point about valuations. People are going to have to become comfortable with flat rounds and down rounds because yeah. getting back to those super high multiples of ARR and other metrics that are measured for the valuation is going to be challenging. You mean so people, so you mean flat rounds and downs, you mean raising money at the same or a lower valuation than you've raised at before? You mean people have to get comfortable, you mean founders or investors? I think, I think both. Right. I think, I think you're talking about investors more. Yeah, I mean over the past 10 years it's been up and to the right for everything. Yeah. We've been hiring, we've been raising, we've been raising funds, we've been raising yeah. for founders, like all that stuff. That, that Those days have very much um, you know turned around. So I think that they need to be comfortable. The second thing is, is that we're getting to 2024 or we're in 2024 now, and this is a new vintage when VCs go out to raise their next fund. Yeah. The challenge is over the past couple of years, and they, whatever they say publicly or not in the press and otherwise, pacing has slowed. I remember when we were doing our weekly rapid ignition lane, there'd be like 10 or 15 crazy. deals yeah. a week, right? And Bex was writing and it was like, bang, yeah. bang, bang. Now it's like three a week, yeah. right? So pacing, it's very clear pacing has slowed. What does that mean? Their deployment period, so in a 10-year fund, a VC will usually invest in, what, three to four years yeah. and then follow-ons after that. If that three to four-year window is now four to five or five to six, then their 2024 fund becomes a 2025 Absolutely. or 2020. So the whole industry is going to shift. And the last point I would say is that the VCs hired almost as quickly as the founders hired <laughs> during the boom of 2021, 2022. Start, like Startmate had like hundreds of people. And Blackbird's got over yeah. 60 people. Yeah. I, I think that includes Today. Startmate. Squarepeak's got 30 or 40 people oh now, gosh. you know, because yeah. they're in Australia, Southeast Asia and Israel. Yeah. Anyway, there's going to have to be, in my view, there's going to have to be some kind of change in those areas. They can't sustain those levels of employees if they're pacing, slowing, if, if their kind of fund structures are... Well, there is a way to maintain the speed of investment... Raise less money. Yeah, I mean, I know that 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 it, that's more sacrilege in the VC industry. <laughs> yeah. But the truth is, it is easier to make money on a fifty million dollar fund than on a five hundred million dollar fund to get mega returns. Oh. You can invest it faster if you want to say, "Well, I still want to invest it across ten companies." You can. 
And that is the thing. Like maybe they shouldn't just be raising ever larger funds in this environment. I think, I think it's a good time to invest in VC now personally. Yeah. yeah, and I think so. that I think that the the number one, in my view, the number one thing that's going to be talking around the tables in the VC funds is liquidity. Yeah. Like how do we get money back to our investors? Yeah. And so you have a look in the paper a couple of weeks ago, a 1.5 billion US dollar secondary sale is, you know, rumored around the Canva area. Employment Hero did a secondary as part of their last raise. Yeah. So I think that that is an opportunity to be able to satisfy limited partners by saying, here's some money back, whether they then go and say, give it to us for our next fund yeah. or they let them have it for a while. But I think that there'll be more pressure from investors to say, if you want more money from me, you need to give me something. Absolutely. And so I think on that note, we've gone unsurprisingly over time, but it's been amazing having you on the show, Gav, as always. Certainly great to have you on the video episode as well. Uh, and... Dear, what's your, what's your big week planned? Or uh, it's it's finally nice weather in Melbourne. Finally, it seems pretty nice weather the whole time. Well, you're away. That's why you think that. You know the weather ever. that you thought was nice. Yeah, that was Fiji. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you thought it was nice. Wet season in Fiji. So I'm going to try and you know get out to the uh, beach as much as I possibly can. Yeah. Try and take Actually, it was of the just weather. at the beach at yeah. Sandbar down in Port Melbourne here, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Grabbing a coffee. Act. Pardon? Packed. It was packed. Yeah, yeah kids yeah. everywhere. So oh, school mate, holidays finished this week. Last day of school holidays. Yeah. Well, my kids who are sitting here in this room, one of them goes back tomorrow and one of them goes back, I think, on Wednesday or my Thursday. My kids go tomorrow. Yeah. Mine are Thursday. Yeah. There you go. So happy days. There we go. Just around the corner. Thank you, James. Thanks to <laughs> Mike and Keelan and to Ideas Kids for seeing so much, so beautifully. My kids want to come on. They're very jealous of your kids. But I said, I'm not sure my kids can sit in... in here for an hour and a half and that'll be so well. fine. I like also. I just want to finish by saying, if I was your careers counselor in high school, my su- suggested career for you would be a judge. Do you know why? Because you'd be amazing with the, the gavel. gavel. Yeah. By yeah. the way, in my whole trial, there, there was not one gaveling. No gavel. Not once. I don't think there was a gavel. When did the trial? When do we hear about this trial? I don't know. We'll see. It's not. It's not. It's out of. We got to do hands. a special episode it's of the at the front of the Supreme Court hands. when this happens. But no, uh, let's, let's see about that. Uh, and that note, thanks for coming, guys. Uh, appreciate everybody's work, and speak to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir. If you want to submit a question for the show, please send a voice recording to Adam J. Schwab at Instagram. Today's show was produced by Mike Liberale. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Please give us a rating and don't forget to tell your friends. We'll be back next week for our weekly analysis of all things growth and tech.